This episode is supported by Dove. Over half of the girls around the world suffer from low self-esteem, which causes them to opt out of important life activities and it puts their health at risk. The Dove Self-Esteem Project is the world's largest provider of self-esteem education and teaches the next generation to feel comfortable in their own skin by working with schools and parents. Dove has created and uses educational evidence-based resources that are designed to help young girls and boys reach their full potential. They cover topics like bullying and social media to help young people build a positive relationship with the way they look. You can get these printable resources to help increase self-esteem in the young people in your life at dove.ca slash self-esteem. But Alex. Yeah, Shane? Let's get this episode started. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour on this Family Tree Podcast, episode 65. We made it the big six five. The big six five. That's a lot of podcasts. You were ready to quit at episode, what, four? Episode three, maybe. <laughs> but I said, no, let's keep going. I said, we're going to be rich. And look are at we? us now. No, but I, it's what I said, and that was all you needed to be sucked in. You know, it is all I needed to be sucked in, but it was hard. I couldn't stand, I still can't, but I really couldn't stand the sound of my own voice at that point. I've gotten you better with it. You couldn't stand it? Try um, being me in that editing room. Mm, I fixed a lot of my vocal tics. I'm still working on a lot, but you know. Yeah, we took the C word out of your vocabulary. Oh, get first, out of here. What? If people have listened to the first three episodes, it's riddled with C words. No, it's not. Well, because I had to edit them out. Well, I did not hear- say that. I'm kidding. Come on. <laughs> I was, sorry, you were screwing up my reality. And I was trying to think if there was like an alternate reality that I couldn't remember. Mm, like reality. what was I going through at that time? So tonight we have a great episode. It is going to be the the sleep episode. Don't so- pump the crowd up too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have two very different sleep experts on tonight. So our first is Chrissy. She is also known as the peaceful sleeper on Instagram, but she is a sleep consultant and a licensed therapist. And she answers all of our questions that have to do with infant sleep, toddler sleep, which we're having a really hard time with right now. And it is so helpful to have somebody to talk to directly about your questions. We had all of our listener questions answered that were written in before the interview. And she's helped me feel lot more confident in putting Lucy down although tonight is that (laughs) things weren't going well yeah I didn't really come in with a lot of questions and then once we started I just had so many questions and Mm. she was able to help with so many different things I never realized how much sleep affects my life like I (laughs) like the toddler sleep I know real sleep affects my life but no, toddler sleep, it, well, it, baby it, sleep. Mood more than anything, I think, for us. You know, if we're up all night or dealing with bad sleep issues with the kid, it can really impact your mood as a parent and your patience level. But next up, and this is where I say we have a very different kind of sleep expert, we have Catherine Nikolai, who is an author, a yogi, and the host of the podcast, Nothing Much Happens. She also wrote a book of the same name, and essentially they're bedtime stories for adults to help people go and stay asleep. Now, I discovered this woman through a YouTube. She was in a recommended video. I mm-hmm. think the video didn't have a ton of views, but I just clicked on it because the, the headline was like, how to survive being stressed in the pandemic. But I watch it and all of a sudden, this woman's just like hypnotizing me with yeah. her calm demeanor. And I'm like, I have to get this woman on the pod. I thought it would be very easy because the YouTube video didn't exactly go viral. But her podcast is like one of the biggest podcasts in the world. No oh, hyperbole. It's so popular. She is like millions and millions and millions of downloads. Uh, she's like the Michael Jordan or Serena 
Williams of podcasting. <laughs> I'm well, glad you're being inclusive. Yeah. But yeah, no, she she's absolutely incredible. And when you listen to our interview with her, you're going to get it within the first 10 seconds because, you know, her voice and her entire persona, everything about her is just so calming and it really exudes out of the microphone when she speaks. But I totally get why you listen to her, Shane. And I totally get why so many millions of people do. So if you want to check that out, it's Nothing Much Happens podcast, and we will talk about it in the interview, but it's just the coolest concept I've ever heard. I think she's the biggest guest we've ever had on. Oh, I think so. In terms of like influence and popularity, it's weird because we've had such big guests, Mm -hmm. but she's secretly such a powerful person in this this social media landscape. No, it's fantastic, and I I really know that everybody will love this interview, so stick with it and let us know what you think. But Shane, my love, cheers. Okay, uh, we just say cheers. What are we drinking here? We are drinking uh, same thing as last week. We're back on the nog. We're back on the nog, and we're doing spice ninety four seed lips, spice ninety four, and eggnog, which of course it's our favorite non alcoholic spirit. And the spice ninety four, it's got like kind of a I don't know spicy woodsy kind of flavor, and it goes amazing with eggnog. Yeah, why do I love eggnog in the month of December? Right? And then it kind of grosses me out every other month. I know. I know. It feels like it's way too much any other time of the year. But in December, I could drink a carton a day and totally feel okay about it. Yeah. Why is it? Like an eggnog in the summertime uh, would make uh, me barf. The thought of it makes me want, like it honestly makes me want to get, that's disgusting. But it, right now, it's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like water now. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner and nighttime drinks. Okay, right off the bat here, I'm curious. The singing competition. We had a singing competition last week. We sang earnestly. We tried our best. I would think I won the competition. But anyway, we put a vote on your Instagram. Yes. And I'm very curious to see the results. Are people kissing your ass because it's your Instagram account? Or are they giving me the respect that I think I deserve? What do you think the votes would be percentage-wise? Okay, I think there's going to be some ass-kicking. Sorry. I think there's going to be some ass-kicking. So the results are going to be skewed. You said kicking again. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. (laughs) I think there's going to be some ass-kissing. Because it's you, right? You're like the base of this family tree for now. <laughs> but um, okay, so but I still think the clips I chose, I chose where my voice sounded a little bit better and yours voice sounded a little yeah, worse. Yeah, thanks for that, a hole. Well, I wanted to even the scales here. Okay, so I will say it was sixty percent in my favor. You are correct. It was sixty forty. So you're right, which I'm I'm shocked at. Because, okay, you did choose worse clips for me, but how could anybody get on board with the whisper singing? Because that's how you sing when you don't have a great voice, but you want it to be passable. (laughs) You're doing a better job now than you did last week, I think. The whispering was super heavy and it just like, it reminded me of just like, I don't know, some weird lounge singer who's like getting a little too intimate with the mic. But still, it's not necessarily terrible singing. You're, you were, and you do this often, by the way, you were like cleared your throat right into the mic in the (laughs) middle of you singing. And I kept it in. Most of the time, it's like me editing it out. But but moving on, first topic I have down here, presence. Is everyone else getting their shopping done way earlier because of Amazon Prime? Do we think that is the new... They, they must be and it's not even amazon prime but like companies have been you know in stores have been putting out deals since like a month ago and everybody is making it so much easier 
to get things shipped. Even my contacts place, like my glasses store right where I get my contacts, in March I approached them because I need a new pair. And they said that they wouldn't deliver anything to my house. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm high risk. I'm not going out to stores. And they're like, oh, sorry. So it was sucked. But then this week I was like, okay, I really need contacts. I've been wearing the same pair for five months, which is horribly damaging to my eyes. And they sent me a year's worth in two days. So it's like everybody's just everybody's making it so much easier but I wonder where the people who like going to like little craft people like you know how your mom likes getting like all those like knitted things from carnivals and things (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know my mom (laughs) we make my mom sound like the trashiest no 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 not at all it does there's nothing trashy about it I'm just saying like you know how like your mom gets me something knitted Typically, like From last year, carnival. Ago. No, <laughs> a carnival. Yeah, like a fair. Like, well, she is pretty good at the ski ball. <laughs> like makers, they have makers tents, and you can buy what oh, people yeah, make. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. What is that? A carnival, a fair, a winter fair? <laughs> <laughs> a carnival, just a carnival affair sounded funny. <laughs> but I just pictured her like effing some carny for a knitted. Get uh, out of here! It's no, a but- carnival affair. <laughs> No, but, you know, some people really uh, take time and really find beautiful pieces at places like those from makers. Is my mom one of those people? Yes. And I'm just wondering, like, some people are just really good at finding really cute things from these people uh, and from, like, different makers. And that's a whole experience in itself. So the carnival shoppers are really, like, probably having a, I'm serious, having a tough time finding these on Amazon Prime. This sounds silly, but here's the thing. I hate shopping. So shopping from my couch on my phone is the best thing in the world. But a lot of people really love it and they love picking out and like feeling gifts that they're going to get for somebody else and they get really excited about it. And I I really do feel bad for those, for those types of people. Do you miss a mall at all? Is there anything no. about going in a mall you miss? No, I rarely went malls and I don't. Like, I just don't, it's not really on my radar. It's not like I'm, like, happy that I haven't been in a mall for this long, but I just, it's not on my radar. I only really liked going to the mall. Well, I love a food court. Mm -hmm. I love an arcade. So, like, early 90s mall, I love it. I love being a teenager, cruising the mall, and I guess scoping babes. You're not even talking about COVID times. You're just, like, in general, the passage of time over the last two decades. Well, I'm just saying when I love the mall. I I don't love the mall. yeah. Yeah, you didn't love no, them no, all that when you were a teenager? No, I loved them all when yeah. I was a teenager, yeah. Yeah, did you like go and like scope dudes at the mall? Was that a thing Of for you? course. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I remember one time, I don't know if I, I'll say the name, you can bleep it, but uh, my friend Victoria and I went and there was this guy we thought was hot from another school. I still remember his name. His name was Chris Resendez and we followed him. I was just going to say. What? Girls, you, it used to be a thing where girls would follow me wherever <laughs> I went. <laughs> And I'm not even saying I was like some hot guy, but I will say this. When I was like in grade seven, I was like the hot guy grade seven. In, you know, grade nine, I became this hideous pubescent freak with covered in acne. But grade seven, I'd go to the mall and just walk around. And I'd be with my mom sometimes. I'd be kind of embarrassed. But not women. Girls would be following me everywhere I went. Okay. It was like a game. So Victoria and I would literally. And you look back, right? So this is so embarrassing. But we'd call it manhunting. Even though we were only 12 or 13, we would go manhunting at the mall. That's pretty misogynistic. No. (laughs) What's the the word for women? I don't think there even is that. Well, they should invent one for you girls. We'd go to the mall. We knew this guy was going to the mall or like some other guy we liked. 
and he'd be like walking he'd be with his friends and we'd like hide behind a pillar and then we'd like pretend to be shopping in the next store and we'd be just checking him out like being creepy like this is creepy behavior but when you're young it's just such a game and yeah. And girls were, oh, it was like an unwritten rules. Like the guy had to be like walking and the girls would kind of chase. It was, <laughs> the guy wouldn't really follow as much as the girls you know, would. This is actually making me feel a lot better because I thought it was just me and my weird friends. No, I was going to bring it up. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was like, is this a figment of my imagination or what? But I know it was real and I know everyone was doing it. My first boyfriend actually uh, got dumped at the mall. So he asked me out on like a Saturday. This was in grade seven over MSN. He said, Alex, would you be my girlfriend? I said, yes. And then our big plan was to go and meet up at the mall, our two groups of friends. So I went with my group. He went with his group. I remember we were up on like an upper balcony yeah. and him and his friends were below. And then we get there and I froze up because I had never actually met this guy in real life. Like we were friends from other schools. Oh, this has happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I told my friend, the same one, Victoria. Terrified to I meet said, them, man. Vicky, Vicky, you got you to gotta say something. I don't want to date him anymore. I don't want to date him anymore. So she yells down. He's surrounded by all his friends. Alex is breaking up with you. And then we hightail it out of there and like run into Le Chateau. So wow. I broke up with him. We ran to Le From Chateau. the upper deck to below? <laughs> yeah. And then my mom picked us up and we were like giddy for a weekend. Just thinking about how funny that was. And then now I'm like, this guy turned out to be one of my good friends. But how awful. But he was at a different school. So you knew you could never see him again, kind of. Yeah. Until high school. And then we became good friends in high school. See, for me, my first girlfriend was in grade eight. And then we started going out. But I never talked to her before. Wait, she was from a different school? No, she went to Riddell, too. That's where I went. And the rumor got out that I liked her, even though I liked another girl named Jen. But I got, like, embarrassed to admit the real girl I liked. So I said I I liked this other Jen. And then they asked her out on my behalf. And they're like, she said yes. I'm like, okay, we're going out. She calls me. She wants me to meet at the mall. I go, okay. And then I just didn't show up. Shane. Then she broke up with me. No kidding. Yeah. But uh, what is this podcast about? Is it a parenting podcast? Or? Relationships. I think okay. this is all This is all good. Good. Uh, we are the number 13 podcast in Canada for parenting. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk about that. Do you miss the mall? Then I wanted to transition that perfectly into stocking stuffers for women. Mm. This is some like big ticket items I find easy. I don't have a big problem because you just throw money at the problem. Right. But the stocking stuffers are killing me. But that's like so easy. Oh yeah? Okay. So I, I take to the internet. <laughs> I kind of crack my knuckles. I sit down. I Google good gifts for women. Then it's not good enough. So I'm like good gifts for wife. Like good gifts for a wife. Tell me if these are good gifts. Okay, so I've been and these been, stocking been, stuffers. Were you looking up stocking stuffers? Yes, okay. stocking stuffers. I like some was was like a twenty year old girl. She's like stocking stuffers for under twenty five dollars. I'm like, okay, a lot of the items were way mm-hmm. too cheap in quality. So I was like, okay, no. Then I found a website that seemed like it was for adults. Right. And I'm gonna go through the items, and you tell me if this is a <laughs> bullshit site or not. All right. Gift advisor. Okay, stocking stuffers for wife. All right. There we go. Tell me if any of these are decent. Zodiac sign necklace. Oh my god, you know how I feel about zodiac signs. Okay, personalized purse hanger. What? So I guess you put that on the table and you can get your first initial. Okay, I got that's actually clever. Would I lose it? Yes. Coffee of the month club. Pardon? Coffee of the month club for eighty nine bucks. 
Wait, wait, wait. So describe what that is. That you, actually... You get a new coffee, I guess, every month. Meanwhile, a big part of our life and ritual is making the morning coffee Yeah, every but day. then wouldn't they send us like a new bag of beans every month? You would like that? I thought, okay, if that's actually good, I'll mark that No, up. I don't know. I don't know. If it's like flavored. See, I like our coffee, but it depends. That could be good. See, I think you're lying because that's clearly a terrible gift. <laughs> <laughs> for for you because well, yeah our, well we'd share it and so then it wouldn't be a gift for me i guess no i wouldn't use that coffee because i love the coffee i get <laughs> i wouldn't like, like no our, co- our coffee is amazing fortino's coffee if you live in our area fortino's has the best coffee. okay you're ruining this segment sorry, here sorry. So, okay personalized chopsticks <laughs> so you can put your name at the end of these chopsticks this That's... is a real website this is in the top 10 gifts custom fingerprint pendant pardon this is, this is a pendant where you can put your fingerprint into. Wait, wait. Whose fingerprint goes on there? Yours? I don't know. It doesn't and I say. wear your fingerprint around Maybe it could be Lucy's, neck. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Walking food tours. Sorry. This is I don't this was made in COVID time. Here here's the one that really got me though. And I just angrily exited the site. Mm-hmm. Romantic love coupons. $26.96. So I was like, are these vouchers for some stores or something, some great value, like those entertainment books that used to come out when I was a kid that gave you awesome deals? I zoom in on it here. Look what the one coupon says. Play video games, and it's two people sitting on a couch. So the idea is... You, oh my god! I get this for you, and I'm like, here you go, Alex. Use this video game coupon at your leisure, and then you go, can I play video games now? Wait. And I go, where's your coupon? Why does this cost twenty six dollars? I used to make these for my mom for Mother's Day every, in every elementary school. Every ten year old did that, right? That's what this is for grown men to give to their oh, wives. Yikes! Like nothing's good here. Okay. A real four leaf clover necklace. It's like no one <laughs> wants this shit. What is this? Like, is this all just products that obviously aren't selling? And they're like they're they're preying on desperate men trying to fill their women's stockings. Okay, so it's funny because I actually ended up looking at this kind of stuff for men as well. And I mean, Shane, the stuff might be good for some men, but for you, like the things that were popping up were things for tools or different kinds of tools grilling supplies and i'm like shane's barbecued once what are these whispering he's showing me another thing whispering cedar earrings they're tree earrings (laughs) for a hundred dollars that's not much of a stocking stuffer at that point but shane like i gave you the best stocking stuffers that you could get get me like i told you buy me stuff from the ordinary i told you what products to do they're all like ten dollars and below perfect for stocking stuffers i need socks i love face masks it's not hard i don't think for me like i pretty much told you everything well i really wanted to add a few items that you didn't tell me so because a part of christmas is a surprise element of course so i didn't just want to go through the text where you told me every single item (laughs) because something (laughs) makes me feel like a loser about that but these websites i find them very they're preying on dumb men they are but the thing is you and i have a lot of similar taste and like you know i don't wear costume jewelry too often so i wouldn't spend too much money on that kind of thing gulp (laughs) okay next topic here i started smoking dope can i you looked at me like i just said i'm like doing lines of cocaine every day no 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 it's fine i can't say that yeah it's legal yeah i know what I i was gonna say i'm doing it it's legal it's for my sleep it's the lightest weed ever. It was given to me by, I won't say, but someone 
In your family area? Yeah, someone in my family. And it is the perfect weed. And I still feel so much shame every time I go out to smoke it. And any weed smell, there's such a stigma associated with it that I feel like I'm committing the worst crime. Meanwhile, you know, I'll throw back a shot. We'll drink on this podcast. And I won't feel anything. I'll feel like, oh, that's just what adults do. But there's something about weed that just makes me feel like I'm a terrible person and father. Well, and, and the thing is, like, you're doing it right before bed. And is it helping you sleep, do you think? It's it's helping. It's not necessarily helping me sleep. It's helping me relax before I sleep. That's good. No, that's so I guess it though, is. Then, yes. it, yeah, it's turning off your brain. It's allowing you to get into that sleepy state. But I think, okay, for a few reasons. I think weed... First of all, it just sounds bad. So I think that's why a lot of people are kind of adopting cannabis again, even though that sounded more like a medical or scientific term before. People are now just referring to adults anyway that I know are using cannabis instead of weed just to call it recreationally. And I think that is a good move. But here's the thing. I think you can relate it to poo in this sense. Like people aren't afraid of peeing. They'll talk about peeing. They'll pee in front of their spouse. I don't even shut the door when I take a pee. But poo, there's so much shame and stigma with. Like you poo, you don't want anybody in the bathroom. You don't want them to go in the bathroom for 10 minutes after. People don't talk about poo. They don't make jokes about pooping like as often as they do with pee. And it's because it stinks and there's such a smell associated with it. And I think it's like weed, like it has a smell associated with it. It's a stinky smell. So maybe that helps create the stigma. Yeah, urine doesn't smell good necessarily, but it's... Yeah, but it's not like poop it's true which is a good segue I'm, i want to show you a photo yes so i went to take a pee in uh, the toilet and i just can you tell me what that is <laughs> <laughs> can you tell the people alex just what i'm showing you <laughs> he's just holding up this picture in my face he's showing me a picture of a little floater called a floaty so this is about a a a chicken nugget sized piece of poop and (laughs) you do this often like for someone who's so scared of poop you are very scared of poop you leave these little nuggets all the time and it's so careless shame it's not i'm here i flush and then for some reason maybe my poo is just really lightweight and it just kind of floats back up to the top yeah, but just double flush. I know, but I'm usually rushing around. Like I got a kid on the outside of the bath and then I got 10 to, so I flush and run and I don't stay and wait to see if something pops back up. This is so embarrassing. Well, I feel like I'm red. It's funny because, okay, the truth is that was a photo of my poop. <laughs> okay, okay, but. You're psychotic. No, no, but what happened was I'm like in there. I pee. You, you're about to come in. I'm like, I'm going to save this for the pod. And then I flush it because I don't want you to know because I want to talk about it on the podcast. But I'm like, I should have taken a photo of it. It would have been funny if I showed her. But then instantly I have to go poo. So I'm like, I'll just go upstairs, take a quick little poo and then take a photo of it. And so you're you're poo gaslighting me. No, you still did have a floater. It was that same size. Oh, I did have one. You did. Yeah, I'm not. I just (laughs) I just told you you had the floater. You came in. I I had to flush the (sighs) toilet. Because I got embarrassed for you and I wanted to talk, save this for the podcast. <laughs> you got embarrassed for me, yet you're more than willing to open it up well, on it the multi- podcast. It was multiple things. Like I was, I wanted to save it for the podcast and not have you know. And then I got kind of spooked when you came in because I'm like, 
But I should have taken a photo of that. But yeah, that photo you saw wasn't even from that washroom. It was from the upstairs. But, wow. Um, yeah, Thank you, ha- Shane. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. You know, interesting content here. And also, I'll file this topic under pet peeve segment. So okay. it's toilet related again. Lucy, I've been getting her to go pee. Uh, mm-hmm. In the potty before she goes to bed. Often after she goes pee, she runs to her bedroom, and sometimes I will forget to empty her potty with pee. I'm supposed to put it in the toilet and then clean out yes. the potty. And you and I, 99% of the time, clean this. So last night you're like, hey, someone left pee in the potty. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're leaving turds all over <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> the house. <Yeah. laughs> But anyway, you you say to me, oh, someone left pee in the potty and didn't clean it. I'm like, really? I always clean it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That was me. I I rushed. I shouldn't have done that. I'm I'm sorry. Anyway, I go upstairs in the morning. The pee is still there. So I accidentally left pee in the potty. You full well saw it, went downstairs, told me I left the pee in the potty. I was assuming you were going to go and clean it up. It was at night. It was our pillow talk before bed. No, it wasn't. It was like before the bedtime pillow talk when we were still standing up. Well, well, tell me to clean it. Like one thing is me forgetting. The other thing is like full on neglect. I No, I I meant to tell you to go and do it, I guess. You are a toilet neglector. (laughs) You are. And I think on a subconscious level, you like it. What do I like? I don't know. There's something like... That is a psychotic thought. I don't like anything. First of all, I don't like having super cute, lightweight poops that just happen to float up to the surface Alex, of the water. Alex, I'm going to barf, honestly. <laughs> I'm trying to enjoy my eggnog in December. <laughs> You're making this eggnog seem like a summer eggnog. Get out of here. No, I'm not. Egglog, a- if you will. Shane, this is so gross. So What's that- next? Oh, now I'm just at my point where I say an interesting fact about Alex, mm-hmm. I had a couple to choose from. The, they're not always supposed to be embarrassing. In fact, I just want you to get to know Alex. This is a new so segment. That's why I'm you told to... the poop story. No, that was just a story. <laughs> We're, we talk about our lives in this opening, right? We, we went through your whole mall adventure. Okay, go on. Uh, Alex wanted to be a novelist. <laughs> I didn't know that until we started this podcast. She just revealed it in one podcast that her dream was to become a novelist. I never knew this. We'd been married for quite a while and I didn't know that. But there you have it. There you have it. If you mm. haven't heard that episode, I, I think it might have been the Simon Rex episode. It, it was it was Michael Gervais. Michael Gervais. You revealed that it was the Emma Watkins, Michael Gervais interview and you revealed you want to be a novelist. So if this is your first episode listening and you're like, hey, what's Alex all about? She is a dreamer. <laughs> bit of a dreamer a you know your dad it. is cut from the same cloth well, he was kind of a screenwriter i wrote five chapters that's pretty cool and your dad has begun a screenplay yes so and i think that's ongoing fun. for like 20 years and i think that's the funnest spot to be in when the when the ideation process mm-hmm. is just because everything else is just pulling your hair out and it sucks the oh, fun part is the very beginning when you're really excited about that idea but i thought that it was fitting to mention that because we do have a, a prolific novelist on today because the, the host of Nothing Much Happens also write, wrote a book of and the same name. she writes all her own stories that she tells on the podcast, which is insane. Yes. Okay, but now let's go to our first interview, which is with Chrissy. Does she have a last name? Chrissy L. <laughs> you can she, say no. Okay, so her last name is L. And she goes by The Peaceful Sleeper. But first, we're going to tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard. And when you go to get diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, 
finding a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending a fortune shouldn't be just as hard. It's true. Co-founded by Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, Hello Bello is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. And these really are the best diapers. I'm so glad we stumbled across Hello Bello. Yeah, and it's not just their diapers. Their wipes are amazing. Their creams are amazing. Gosh, we just got a detangler that is brand new with the company, and that is amazing. And e- amazing. That's oh, interesting. The- <laughs> I like that. That's a good idea. Amazing. Ad-lib. And each bundle comes with these amazing products. You can get seven packs of diapers, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even one full-size free product with your first order. Plus, you can get 15% off any add-ons like the bubble bath, the wipes, diaper rash cream, the detangler. There are so many things to choose from and they're all so beautiful. So to get Hello Bello's super soft, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door, go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree30 for 30% off your diaper bundle order. That is huge bang for your buck 30. and a lot of potential blowouts saved. So don't forget that's hellobello.ca and the promo code is thisfamilytree30. Again, hellobello.ca and promo code thisfamilytree30 to start bundling with 30% off your first order. This promo is applicable to Canadians only and so, so worth it. And just between you and I, there's going to be something going on on Alex's Instagram account, hellobello-related December 14th, so look out for that. But we are also supported by my breast friend. My Breast Friend is the number one choice of nursing pillow for millions of parents around the world who nurse their babies. Shane's giving me a look, but yeah, Shane, that means dads too. Well, we gotta tell everyone, breast is spelled B-R-E-S-T. It is spelled B-R-E-S-T, and Shane, you have experience using one of these nursing pillows. I don't want to brag, but I'm one of these hands-on dads. I just love feeding my child, but I'm not one of those tough guys who says, I don't need that pillow. No, I need the pillow for the support. No, everybody does. Honestly, feeding without a good supportive pillow can actually really hurt you. Because pain doesn't discriminate. Pain doesn't discriminate. And for more than 25 years, my breast friend's patented wraparound design has supported people in over 40 countries and thousands of birthing hospitals to support successful nursing. Lactation consultants around the world credit the pillow for helping parents achieve longer and more comfortable feeding cycles than they thought possible. And that was so the case for me. It's simply the best, most supportive choice for successful breastfeeding. And you can purchase my breast friend online at buybuybaby.com, target.com, walmart.com, babylist.com and amazon.com okay but now let's get to this interview with chrissy aka the peaceful sleeper all right chrissy thank you so much for joining us today i know we tried to do this a while back but things were crazy and i also know that your daughter from your instagram chipped her two teeth yesterday so i'm hoping that you're okay Yes, we're we're good. We got them fixed. It was good. (laughs) Amazing. So Chrissy, you are the face and the specialist behind the peaceful sleeper, which is a baby, toddler, whatever, sleep Instagram blog. We are having some serious issues and not with our baby who is four months old, but with our two and a half year old. I thought I thought we were done this. Why are we having issues again? with our toddler who was a great sleeper? So toddlerhood and adolescence mark, they're, they're kind of the same 
process that happens in two different places and times in life. So toddlerhood is all about this really overwhelming dynamic of like, I can do it. I'm independent. I want to do it on my own. So feeling all of this independence and confidence matched with I feel really small. This world is really big. I don't have that much power actually. And our toddlers start to have these really big imaginations and they're starting to dream. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you've ever had this experience with your toddler, but like if they wake up from a nightmare and you can just tell that they're confused because there's like, they're like, hold on, there was just a lion in my bed, but now I'm here and there is no lion. I don't really understand what's happening. And as adults, we can wake up and say, oh my gosh, that was a terrible dream. But we know like, oh, that was a dream. But our little tiny toddlers that have just gotten this new big imagination, they don't really know what's going on. And so they're in this really interesting and overwhelming blend of, I feel really big. I feel really independent. Oh wait, I feel really small. I feel really dependent. And they have very little emotional regulation. And so they just lose their crap all the time and they're throwing fits and it's just, it's chaotic. So it is not abnormal that we are going through this. No, you're totally on track. Most toddlers regress in some way, shape or form. Also, they're realizing that they have power Mm -hmm. and they're almost starts to go through the roof. Like they, they want to hang out. Mom and dad are so cool. They're so fun. I don't want to go to bed. Mom and dad stay up late and drink wine and eat chocolate, like, and watch shows. I want to be a part of this. Who told you that? (laughs) Well, I, I wanted to hit a few sleep issues that not only we are having, but our listeners, a lot of them have been following me from when I first had my first daughter, Lucy, and they have toddlers themselves. So I want to start off with naps. And then we'll move our way down to sleep. Nap striking. Lucy does this. She's doing this right now. She's fighting naps. We put her in the crib and her nap time is two and a half to three hours long. But she doesn't nap. However, she's totally happy and she sits there and she plays with her animals. She has a great time. Maybe she'll fall asleep. Maybe she won't. A lot of people, though, you know, their kids will fight. Their kids will cry the whole time. What do you do when you have a kid who doesn't nap? Yeah, you're totally on the right track. You take away the power struggle for it because you can't force your kid to sleep and they know that now. I want every kid to have quiet time every day. And so if you can provide the space, like, sorry, every day you have to have quiet time. You're going to be in your crib for an hour and you can choose whether you're going to sleep or not. Mm -hmm. We don't want their rooms to be full of too much fun and excitement. But if they're playing with stuffed animals that are in their bed, I also put a box of books next to my daughter's bed and she can reach through the bars and grab books. And if she's going to lay in her bed and look through books for an hour and have some quiet time, fine. We're going to call that a win because it's not so exciting that it's going to reinforce staying awake for naps. Like if they're tired, they're going to get bored and they're going to fall asleep. But if they're not tired, then they're not just miserable. And the name of the game with toddlers is providing structure, providing gentle boundaries, and giving them a lot of autonomy within the boundaries that they've set. Mm -hmm. And so you're essentially telling your toddler, sorry, here's the boundary, or not sorry, because it's good for them. So you don't have to be apologetic, but 
hey kid, here's the boundary. This is the expectation. You're going to be in your room in the quiet for an hour because your brain needs a reset and mommy needs a reset. And when we have a reset, we can have so much fun later. So here's the expectation. But what you decide to do in your crib or in your room, totally up to you. You can lay down, you can take a nap, I'll turn on this song on the monitor or lullabies. You can read books, you can play with your stuffed animals, or you can sleep. And if we kind of like take our hands off of that and give them this power and control, the more power and control they have, the less of a fight it will be. A lot of parents of toddlers think like, no, 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 your toddler doesn't run the show. You do, which there's some truth in that. But if we can set our firm boundaries about what matters the most and let them pick all of the things, which stuffed animals do you want in your crib? What color sippy cup do you want your water to be in? Do you want to read this book or that book before you go down? Which bedtime song do you want me to sing you? If we can give them all kinds of choices, then they're less likely to fight when they don't have a choice in the matter, because that's like one of 20 things that they didn't get to choose that day. Should there be a different rule between nap time and bedtime? Because I really, I'm kind of doing what you're suggesting at nap time. I'm giving her the option, sleep or don't sleep. This is quiet time. Here's all your stuffed animals, do whatever you want or go to bed. But at nighttime, I feel like I don't, I actually want her to sleep. So is there anything differently I should be doing at nighttime? No, because a lot of times they are pushing through their sleep for the fun and excitement or to have their independence, to have their autonomy, but like that's going to get old after a while. And so if you just ride it out, because sometimes also maybe they take a really long nap and then that means that they're up for a while before bed or they don't take a nap and they fall asleep quickly. And so again, I just say, as long as we've provided the boundaries and the structure and take our hands off a little bit and say, you know what, if it takes you an hour before you fall asleep at night, whatever, mm-hmm. because that's probably only going to be happening for a couple weeks. And then it's going to be more of a one-off thing. And then you just didn't, you saved yourself from weeks of a battle and you're just like, all right, you're going to do your thing. You're going to go through your phases. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think about is like the night before you got married or the night before you start a new semester in college or the night before you start a job, you have all of this excitement or the night before you go on vacation, you have all of this excitement and anticipation. That's kind of your toddler's life every single day. Like, oh my gosh, tomorrow we're going to get to read books and we're going to go on a walk. and watch. They're just jazzed. And I wish we could bottle up that toddler zest for life and sell it. But like, if we just realize that's what's going on, they're having a hard time sleep because they're just jazzed on life. Then like, cool. That's fine. Whatever. The more we stress about it, the more of a problem it becomes. And how much manipulation from the toddler at bedtime should we accept? And what I mean by that is she wants to read a lot of books. And I say one more book. I say pinky promise one more book and then bed. She goes, I promise pinky promise. It's very cute. But sure enough, 20 books later, all of a sudden we're playing another game. And I look at my watch an hour and 20 minutes has gone by. How much of that should I accept? And like, what's a good sweet spot in length? Yeah, not much is the answer. We want to have a little bit of give and take, 
but we always want to bring our kids back to, this is what we said. This is what the standard is. This is what the boundary is. This is what we agreed upon together. I love you so much. We'll read more books tomorrow, you know? And so I, there is always a little bit of give and take, but figuring out what your standard is going to be, you know, when I, and it kind of depends on the kids and it depends on how many you have, you know, with my two and a half year old now, like we're, she's in the same bedtime grind as everybody else. And the baby's probably crying downstairs. And so her bedtime routine looks different Mm -hmm. than my oldest bedtime routine. How, how long is your bedtime routine for your two and a half year old? Cause that's the age Lucy is. Yeah. For London, it's about like four minutes because we're doing a lot of like, you know, we're brushing teeth, going potty, doing a lot of things all together with Mm -hmm. all of the kids. That's but, amazing. you know, by the time I go put her in her crib, like she gets her bear, she gets her blah, blah is what she calls her blanket. She gets a book in the chair. And then I, I sing all my girls four songs. And that's just kind of what ended up happening from that manipulation of like just one more song. And so like I sing the four songs, they have their customized verses with their names in it mm-hmm. and whatever. But sometimes like a lot of times I'm just like, Mala can sing fast at this point, yeah. you know, but I'm starting to sing the songs as we're brushing teeth. I'm starting to, you know, I'm singing the songs when I'm finding her bear, when I'm walking around mm. upstairs. You know, my older kids, they probably had like a 10 minute bedtime routine, but, or maybe 15 minutes with the older ones where there wasn't as much pressure at night, but our kids don't really need these really long, extensive bedtime routines to feel loved and safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been doing it all wrong. How many kids do you have? I have four. Four. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> That's a lot. So I just want to clarify that nap striking, they still go down for quiet time for about an hour, even if they're crying. Okay. And when do we know that our kids are ready to drop their nap? How old like what age should we be doing this at? Good question. Sometime around two and a half to four, which is kind of a big window. Thank God, because I'm not ready to let that yeah, go. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Special time for me. So I still, until about age four, I still do quiet time with my kids. And even like now with homeschool and COVID and all of this, like my all of my kids should have quiet time for an hour every day because everybody needs a reset. But quiet time for older kids that you know aren't going to nap anymore can be lights on in the room, play, you know, grab a couple toys, take that with you to your room for quiet time. It can look different, Mm -hmm. but my marker for when are we ready to drop a nap is a, when you've had enough experience with your kid, not taking a nap and they do fine. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just this giant meltdown in the evening. And when they do take a nap, when it totally throws off bedtime and it's starting to be that nap time is causing more problems than it solves. That's when I usually drop the nap and scoop bedtime a little bit earlier. Mm. And then I still offer nap time. Anytime we make a change or drop naps, even for little tiny babies, like anytime we're dropping a nap or making a change, I still offer that nap once or twice a week. So if we're dropping from two naps to one or one nap to zero, I'll still hope that, you know, one or two times a week, the little one is doing what they 
used to do to kind of Mm -hmm. ease that transition. And how long do you think is too long to leave a kid up there for quiet time? Because like I said, Lucy will be up there for two and a half hours sometimes happily playing. Sometimes she'll fall asleep. Sometimes she won't. But is that is that too long? If she's fine and content and she's just chilling, like Mm -hmm. she clearly doesn't feel neglected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think alone time and time for imaginative play is so good for our kids. Mm -hmm. And I think nowadays we have so much pressure on ourselves to like be present and be doing all the things. But one of my mom's good friends has been a kindergarten teacher for like 35 years. And she said the biggest thing that she has noticed between kids entering kindergarten now and kids entering kindergarten before is that kids nowadays have no imagination because they're occupied all the time. And if they're not occupied by their parents, they're occupied by a screen and they don't have any need for building their imagination. But that's really, really important and critical to their development. You know, if you think 30 years ago or 200 years ago, you know, like moms weren't by their kid's side every day. Like mom had to be, I don't know, baking bread or sewing clothes and sending the kids out to the field to go find sticks and go play. And those kids didn't feel neglected or like, oh my gosh, my mom doesn't love me. She left me by myself. Mm. I think if... If your little one is freaking out and not happily up in their room, in their crib, then I usually keep things at about an hour with check-ins included. But if she's happy and content up there, then just go with it. The other thing I would say to that is with London, we also do the same kind of quiet time for a reset. If she's not, if she's starting to melt down, you know, I'll put her up in her room, lights on, blinds open, a song on her lullaby, books in her crib. And I'll just say like, whenever you're ready to come out, just let me know. Mm-hmm. And so I would say you could do that kind of a check-in with your little one after like an hour, hour and a half and just say like, how you doing? All right. You're doing great. Just let me know when you're ready to come downstairs. It's such a good time, not only for her to reset, but for us to reset. So whether I'm napping or he's working, whatever, it's like we all kind of depend on this. So I was hoping that we weren't torturing her by leaving her up there too long because she does seem happy. But one thing I want to ask is she's still in a crib. And again, it's so nice because I don't have to worry about her bonking her head, getting her fingers caught. I like her being in the crib. But a lot of our friends are starting to transition to toddler beds. When should we do that? What At what age do you do that? And, and how the hell do you do that? Because like, do you just build the bed and stick them in it one day? I think a lot of parents, especially first-time parents, are like, oh my gosh, my little one is getting so big. I want to move to a big girl bed because that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. And really keep them in a crib as long as possible. It's not developmentally damaging in any way to have your little one in a crib longer because that's all they've ever known. So they're not like... Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't have like a seven-year-old in a crib and they're like, why am I still here? I can't even fit, right? Like it's all they've ever known. And your two-year-olds aren't comparing notes with their friends and saying like, oh, you're in a big girl bed and I'm still in a crib. Like, does my mom not love me as much? Like what's going on, right? Like there's none of that that's happening. And so I like to keep them in a crib until either you, you have a little sibling that's going to come along and boot them out 
or until you know that developmentally they can handle this gigantic shift in autonomy. Because once you have a big kid bed, you are just inviting the hop in, hop out, out of bed struggles. And it's a whole lot easier to reason with a three-year-old than it is to reason with a two-year-old. They just understand boundaries and stay in your room and you know, they, they understand all of the things. So a lot of times I work with parents of toddlers who have transitioned to a big kid bed too early. And now they have all of these power struggles that really get eliminated if you just wait until later. Yeah. So is there a way, so just say we transition, cause I do not want to at this point, but just say, you know, a few months down the line, we do transition to a big kid bed. Is there a way we can keep them in their room safely? Like I've seen like the door things, you know what I mean? Because I don't want her walking in the bathroom, like getting something that she can hurt herself with. So like, are we allowed to kind of lock them in the room safely? Is that a thing? So it's not recommended. A lot of parents will do that as kind of a last resort of like, I can't reason with this kid. Any of my boundaries aren't working and I need them to stay in their room. If as a last resort, you are going to do that, I would just say, make sure before you go to bed at night, not only do you unlock the door, but you open it so that they know, let's say there's a fire or something and you want your kid not only to know I can get out, but you want them to know that like your door is open now, like you can get out or if you need me in the middle of the night, if you genuinely need me, you're not locked in. We don't want our kids to feel trapped. Parents will sometimes use locking the door as like a short term intervention of like, Hey, if you like, you have two choices, you can stay in your room or mommy will keep you in your room. But if you can stay in your room and not come out, then I don't need to lock the door. Uh, but in general, I would advocate for not going that route unless, I mean, I support every mom tuning into their mom gut and conscientiously choosing things that will work best for them and their family. Like saying blanket statement, one size fits all locking the door is fine or locking the door causes damage. Like there you can't say that because for some kids they're like kicking and screaming and like really having a hard time and feeling trapped and abandoned and traumatized by having a door locked on them. Some kids it's like, oh, yep. Like mom told me three times to stay in my room and now she locks the door. Like, mm, okay. Like, guess I had that one coming. Like <laughs> it's different for different kids. So you have to tune into your mom gut and your dad gut. But it's easier to do things like an okay to wake clock, having some of these other ideas or standards to say like, here's the boundary, here's the expectation. I've already given you everything that you need in your room. Like you have your blanket, you have your bear, you have your sippy cup of water. If you need to go potty, you can come right back to bed. If the clock is red, it's not time to come out yet. Like there's so many other behavioral interventions we can use to work with our toddlers without having to lock them in. Cause locking them in their room is like the ultimate trump card and the power struggle mm -hmm. of like, you don't have power. I do tough luck. And sometimes we have to do those kinds of things with our kids. Like, Nope, sorry. You know, if they're running in the street, like you are small, I am big. I'm going to pick you up and you can't do this. But I like, 
to avoid those situations as much as possible and just figure out how can I work with my kid so that we both win. Mm -hmm. Now, our daughter, she always wants a snack. And I mean, always like 24 seven, she wants a snack at nighttime. She'll say, I want a snack. Is there any hard and fast rules for a snack before bed or a drink? Like, is that keeping her up or, or like, I, I don't want her to go to bed hungry, but I know she's never hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would, again, just figure out what your boundaries around a snack are going to be. All of my kids go to bed with water. So if they're thirsty, like that's just a battle that I've decided not to pick. Like they all have a sippy cup or like my seven-year-old has one of those like camelback water bottles. So everybody goes to bed with water. The older kids like, yep, fill up your water yourself and go right back up to bed. As far as a snack goes, I will, if my kids all of a sudden right before bed are like, oh, but I'm hungry. I'll tell them like, you can have something with protein. Like you can have a ham roll up, turkey roll up or a cheese stick. Those are your choices. If you're actually hungry, then you're going to take that. But if that doesn't sound good to you, then like you probably weren't actually hungry. So am I giving you graham crackers or goldfish before bed? Like, no, I think you're not really going to do any damage giving them snacks before bed, as long as you're brushing their teeth after and all of that. I wouldn't give them sugar before bed, but I would, what I do is just offer, like, if you're hungry, here are your three options of what you can have. And usually my kids will just like roll their eyes and be like, no, I guess I'm not hungry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like that. So in kind of combination with going to a big kid bed. So although we are in the crib still, she does sleep with a blanket now, like kind of like she, we tuck her into it every night and she loves getting tucked in. She loves getting her 40 animals tucked into beside her. But what is safe for toddlers in regards to blankets, sheets, things in their bed? And how do you teach them to sleep with a blanket? Because she still doesn't get it. If you Yeah. So after 12 months, the AAP says generally you can have like a small lovey or a small blanket safely in the crib. I think for older kids, it's just totally tune into your mom gut. I imagine the AAP has some hard and fast rule on that. But I would just tell everybody to go straight to the source and research that. For me and my family, around two to three is when my kids get really interested in stuffed animals. They want to have all their friends with them. And we kind of experiment with it. But like, I feel very safe and comfortable with my kids having stuffed animals in bed with them. I feel like around two or three, especially around winter time is when they figure out how to actually use a blanket for warmth. But if it's just a blanket for comfort, usually they'll just like snuggle up with it somehow. But usually, I mean, the risk of SIDS is drastically reduced at this point. So as long as you feel like your little one can safely sleep with some of these things and you like, I don't know, talk to your pediatrician, do your research, follow the AAP guidelines. But like I personally, my, my two-year-old has like five stuffed animals in her crib and sleeps with the blanket. With the blanket, they'll just kind of learn to use it when they're, they're developmentally and they're cold enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'll okay, cool. Yeah. So if you, if you put them down and, you know, put the blanket over them, they'll kind of just learn as they go that like, Oh, the blanket goes over me. Yeah. Usually 
I mean, if you think about like, usually in the winter, we have nice warm jammies and they've never really needed a blanket for warmth yet. And so Mm. it's kind of just something that'll slowly develop as they get older and see like, oh, mom and dad sleep with a blanket. This is how, this is how they're sleeping. Oh, I guess I'll try that too. Okay. And what are your thoughts on, uh, again, I filed this under manipulation when I, I put her to bed and then five minutes later, she goes, hey, dad, dad, and I'll come in. Oh, wh- what's up? She'll be like, elephant wants to say hello. And it's just some <laughs> bullshit thing. But then I'll be like, the next time she calls me, I'm going to wait a little bit. And sure enough, I don't go in. She falls asleep, but she had a she had shit in her pants and then she slept with a dirty diaper. So it's like, is there any rule or tricks or anything to help with that or to know when it to go in and when to leave it? Yeah, I think it's just some trial and error and give and take, you know, so if my two year old said like elephant wants to say hi, be like, cool, elephant needs to go to bed. Like mommy, I already put you to bed. It's bedtime. And like, I also talk over the monitor a lot. Like if you have a baby monitor that has like the two way talking. So I'll just say like, go to bed. And usually if I, especially if they're older and I have a monitor on and like, go to bed, go night, night, lay down. That's usually when I can discern better. Like I'll hear her crying because like, maybe I hear her crying for blah, blah. And then I see her reaching over the crib and I realize like, okay, she dropped her blanket and she's not going to go to sleep without it. Or you hear her yell like poop or like, you know, you hear her crying, then you can pop in and check in, you know, after a few minutes and just say like, what's going on and decide like, do you actually need something or no? And if she doesn't, then like, okay, go to bed. Mom and dad are downstairs. And I always tell my kids like mommy and daddy are spending time together. Like we got to cuddle all day long. Now it's my turn to cuddle with mommy Mm -hmm. and just kind of letting them know that like, I love you so much. And this is really important time that I have with your mom or that I have Mm -hmm. with your dad. And you're not invited to this time. Sorry. (laughs) And I think some, some parenting expert, like I just saw somebody post the other day, like no family hierarchy. And like, I totally disagree with that. I think kids thrive and benefit when they know mom and dad love each other and they are each other's top priority. I am very important, but mom and dad care about each other a lot. Like there's so much safety mm-hmm. found in some of that family hierarchy and some of that structure. You're not saying like children should be seen and not heard, you know, like you're not mm-hmm. saying like your chopped liver. I only like dad, oh, but of course. And that's, that's how you end up with four kids, I guess. But uh, yeah, no, we have we have the same kind of ideals, hoping not for four kids, but we do have the same kind of ideals. And we do appreciate that time at night to kind of decompress because it is hard. Um, But then like Shane was saying how sometimes, you know, right after he puts her down, she'll be calling out or crying. She falls asleep. And then I've noticed like after we had the new baby, so we have a four month, uh, four month old right now. She started waking up. She went through a phase of waking up at 3 a.m. for an hour and a half, calling and crying. And then I'd go in, pick her up. She'd go, oh, just just sing me a song. I'd sing her a song, put her back down. She'd ball her eyes out, ball her eyes out. And then she like, it's like the bed is like poisoned her. She will just climb up on me. I'll try to put her down. She'll be screaming. It's like it's painful. I'll try to take her in my bedroom. She can't sleep in my bedroom because it's a novelty. And there's like, no 
solution. So for us, it took a long time, but I just one day just let her cry in her bedroom for an hour. And then, cause I knew like I went in there, checked on her, make sure she didn't have a dirty diaper, let her cry for an hour. And then she fell asleep. Is that wrong? And is there a better way to handle nighttime wake ups, calling outs, whatever? Yeah. So I have a whole bunch of toddler guides that address different variations of a lot of the questions that you're asking. But in general, my principle is like, I want to figure out with toddlers, what is it that they're wanting and needing? And what is it that I'm wanting and needing? And is there a way to meet in the middle? And so maybe she's wanting some of that extra love and comfort. Maybe she's wanting some extra quiet mommy time, or like maybe she just doesn't want to feel as alone in the middle of the night, but like you want to sleep in your bed by yourself all night long and sleep through the night. And so then I kind of say like, is there some symbol or token or some representation of mommy love that I can give her without it needing to actually be me? And so with all of my kids around age two, two and a half, we do this special mommy date to build a bear and they pick out the bear. Like I said, I sing these four bedtime songs every night. They all have their own customized verses. And so they get to pick which song that I sing. And I do the voice recording that goes in their paw. Oh, nice. And then they fill up the bear. I do this whole elaborate story about like, look, there's the machine with all the love. And then you like, they do this little ritual with the heart. And I give the heart like snuggles and tons and tons of kisses and say like, this bear is full of all of mommy's love. And it has mommy's song in it. And so we call it like their mommy bear. And then like that has worked so well for my kids. Like if you wake up and you need me in the middle of the night, all you have to do is push your bear's paw and you hear mommy singing your song. And you know that mommy's love is right here. Um, With my, she's now five. I put like a framed picture of me right next to her crib. So (laughs) just like, seems so silly, but I would just say before bed, like if you need mommy and you need to remember how much I love you, all you have to do is look at this picture of mommy smiling, snuggling you. And you remember that I love you no matter what. I'm always here for you. And I'll give you extra snuggles in the morning. Another thing that I did that was really helpful, kind of along the same lines, because our toddlers have such vivid imaginations. Mm. And so you can use that to your advantage. I found a little nightlight. I think it was Munchkin brand that can go in the crib with them. It just lights up for 15 minutes. You just push a button on the bottom. And I told Paisley this elaborate story of how this is a magical love light. And if you ever need mommy in the middle of the night, all you have to do is push this button and all of my love will go straight to your light. And my love will fill up your room with light at night. And all you need to do is push that button. And mommy's love is right here with you. And she like totally took to it. And for like a year, she was like, I need my love light. And like, (laughs) it worked like a charm. Um, other parents I've worked with have done like, you feel like an idiot when you do it, but like sing songs in your voice memos and make a recording of you singing songs or reading stories. And then if you put a Bluetooth speaker up in their room and they wake up at night, then you can just like turn on the Bluetooth speaker, press play, set a sleep timer. And then for 30 minutes, they can just listen to you singing songs. Like, mommy loves you so much. Go night night. Lay down. I love you. You're my sweet girl. 
are these tools do you think good for if they're waking up too early as well because that's another phase we went through when she was like waking up and ready to go at 5 a.m which is so bizarre and out of character for her you you mentioned something else earlier which was the the ready to get up light where it's like green or red i've heard about these things what is that and is that a good tool for early wake-ups yes Yes, I love okay to wake clocks. They are such a helpful intervention. There are different kinds of them, but they all kind of serve the same purpose. Of There's a difference between when you're supposed to be in your bed and when you're allowed to get up. So some of them don't have a light at all, but then the clock turns green when they can wake up. Some of them are more of a stoplight. I think the hatch, you can like program it to be different colors at different times or whatever, but it's really helpful. Our toddlers have no concept of time. And if you think about it, it, especially if they have blackout curtains, it can be a little bit unpredictable. Like sometimes I cry and mom comes and gets me and we can start the day. And sometimes I cry and mom doesn't come and get me. So like, what's the deal? And so Mm. okay to wake clocks can just give them a little bit of that knowledge or power or consistency of when the clock is red, that means I'm supposed to be in my bed. When the clock turns green, we can get up and play for the day. And so I've seen my kids on the monitor, like wake up, check the clock and then just lay down and fall back asleep. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so it's really, again, it's just putting more power back in their court while still keeping your boundaries, your expectations, your consistency, and just giving them a little bit of that autonomy to know what means what. And you can also come in and say, sweet baby, your clock is still red. So it's, you have to there's 40 more minutes until your clock turns green. I love you. I'll be back as soon as your clock turns green mm-hmm. and it can be gentle, but stay consistent with that. And they'll start to pick it up. What age do you find you're kind of out of the woods in terms of like living a, a nightmare as a parent? There are different <laughs> nightmares at different stages. So, um, never probably is my answer, <laughs> Right, but, but bedtime wise, maybe. It really just kids at every single age are going to push the boundaries. There's as they get older, there's a lot more knowledge and awareness that they're pushing the boundaries. So like even with my five and seven year olds, there's a lot of like, go to bed. I already sent you to bed. You already had your songs. Go to bed. Like I'm done. So still probably I don't know, a couple times a week, there's this like, go to bed, but it's just me yelling up to them, like, girls, go to bed instead of like them crying in the in and out. And what do they need? You know? And so it becomes, they're still always going to push the boundaries, but just figuring out like now at this age with my girls, I say like, Hey, after I put you to bed, like you need to be in your room. But if you want to be coloring, if you want to be reading books under the nightlight, I kind of don't really care. You're just not allowed to come downstairs because me and dad are hanging out. Anyway, to answer, I think what your real question is, usually around age three is when you can mostly have eliminated a lot of these toddler power struggles. They're always going to push the boundaries. My favorite analogy is a roller coaster. Like when you get in a roller coaster, you get buckled in. And the first thing that you do is push against it to make sure that you're going to meet that resistance to know that you're safe. And that is the name of the game in parenting. Our kids are always going to push against the boundary, 
but it actually makes them feel loved. It makes them feel secure. It makes them feel safe when they are lovingly and gently met with that same resistance every single time. The other thing that I think of is like, if we get plopped in the middle of a pitch black room, it's kind of anxiety provoking. And so the thing that we will do instinctively is we're going to walk around and figure out where are the walls? What, what do I have going on here? What can I expect in this space? And once we have kind of a lay of the land, we know where the walls are, then we can feel at peace in whatever is going on. And so like, those are the two things that I always think about for kids and boundaries to not get stressed out by the manipulations when they're pushing the boundary, but just realize like, this is an opportunity for me to show over and over and over again to my little one. I love you. Here's the boundary. It's not going to change because I love you so much. I'm going to offer you consistency. Even if you push against it, what you need is this boundary. And so I'm going to give it to you. Okay, Chrissy, we're just going to take a quick break to let our audience know that. We are supported by Mini Miosh. Mini Miosh is a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. Mini Miosh believes in quality over quantity, and they make the absolute best basics for your littles. I'm talking fashionable wardrobe staples that are super soft, comfy, and timeless, and can be passed from kid to kid regardless of gender. And if you're a grandparent listening, a mom listening, a dad listening, looking for that cute thing to have under the tree, you will not be regretting any Mini Miosh products. No, or a friend listening. Get this for your pregnant friends. Whatever. These are amazing. They have organic cotton fabrics that are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. And exciting news on the Mini Miosh front, they just launched their knit collection, which includes organic merino wool, upcycled polar fleece and Sherpa fleece. And they've also relaunched the fan favorite Fleece Varsity and Biker Rompers, which are adorable. They're comfy. I wish they had them in my size. And in addition to being stylish, comfy, all those things, it is very easy to change a child in these outfits. Oh, my goodness. And anyone who changes children's clothing knows that's almost just as important as anything else. (laughs) It's true. And Minnie Miosh is on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. So you can find the company online at MinnieMiosh.com or at Mini Miosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code ThisFamilyTree15, you're going to get 15% off your order. Again, that is MiniMiosh.com or ThisFamilyTree15 for 15% off. This is available in Canada and in the U.S. Nice. But we are also supported by the Medela Pump and Style Double Electric Breast Pump. This is not just a breast pump. And although it looks convenient, it's easy to carry, and it's kind of cute. It's a serious piece of high-tech equipment. Now, this thing will save you hours of time. Am I right by saying that? It will save you two hours of pumping a day, which is huge. And if you're a mom who is exhausted and goes from feeding your baby to pumping to feeding your baby again to pumping, you know how crucial this is. That's two more hours of video games you could be playing, moms. Or sleep. But hey, (laughs) they have a new max flow vacuum technology that combines with the personal fit flex breast shields to provide effective stimulation and comfort, allowing for 11.8% more milk way faster than pumps with a 90 degree breast shield. So that's where you're getting the time saved. The pump and style is equipped with technology that mimics your baby's suction and is designed for frequent daily use. It's proven to express more milk in less time. And that is so huge when you're trying to build and maintain 
maintain milk production, making it really the best alternative for shared feedings or when breastfeeding is just not available. Okay, how do I get it, Alex? <laughs> you can buy the pump and style double electric breast pump at medillaboutique.ca. And if you use the promo code ThisFamilyTreatGift, you will receive an Easy Expression Bustier, which is a $48 value. So put the Bustier in your cart, use the promo code ThisFamilyTreatGift, and the price will be taken off. Again, you can get these items at medillaboutique.ca. But let's get back to our interview with Chrissy. So when it comes to kids having nightmares, having night terrors, and being afraid of the dark. So we haven't experienced night terrors, but Lucy is all of a sudden afraid of the dark, needs her closet light on. How do you handle these different things? So I guess specifically, like, how do you handle a kid being afraid of the dark? And then what do you do if they have a night terror? How can you help? Yeah. So first of all, nightmares and night terrors are actually two totally different things. So a night terror happens when our kids aren't, they get stuck in the middle of a sleep cycle transition. And so they're not really coherent. They're reacting and they're screaming and maybe they're stuck in like a a nightmare. They're not usually aware of what's going on. So my tip that I do for night terrors is wake them up so that we can get them back down. That's more of a biological genetic thing. It usually runs in families and it's something they'll outgrow on their own. But I Mm -hmm. like to do cold water of some kind, like a cold washcloth on their forehead, on the back of their neck, on their feet, if they're not in footy pajamas. And just like, mommy's right here. I'm going to wake you up and help you get back down. Because those are the kids that are like absolutely losing their shit. And like, there's no reasoning with them. And it's because they're not actually awake. Nightmares are different. It's something that, like we said before, they woke up from a scary dream and now they're in this like confused, like, wait, something scary just happened. And now I'm in my bed, but I still feel scared of that thing, which is an experience that a lot of adults have, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Dream where your spouse cheated on you and you're still like pissed at them for an hour or two. (laughs) Shane knows that one. (laughs) It's my nightmare. Yes. (laughs) So with nightmares too, with nightmares and night terrors, that's one of those things that I'm always going to go to my kids because like they just had something really scary and they genuinely need some mama love and reassurance. That's also where I like to use their imaginations to my advantage with things like the mommy bear with my oldest, she had a lot of nightmares. And so instead of the mommy bear, we called it the protector bear. And like, this is, and my mom like happened to have an old teddy bear that I used to have. And so again, I like made a full elaborate story of like, this was my special magic bear. When I was a little girl, it kept all my bad dreams away and all my scary thoughts. And he always protected me. And now you get to have the protector bear. And so like framing whatever you can to give them some autonomy in the peace and comfort The other thing that I would do, and this is kind of like one of my therapy tricks that I use with my therapy clients all the time that I kind of modified for toddler sleep issues is when we are consumed by scary thoughts, we need to drive those out and kind of overpower them and scoot them out of the way with Mm. more neutral thoughts. And so if she had a nightmare that there's a lion in her crib and I say like, oh, think happy thoughts, go to your happy place. She's going to be kind of like in this, like, oh, I'm in my happy place, but oh, wait, there's a lion and kind of like flipping back and forth. 
And so with my adult therapy clients, we'll do something like an environment scan. And as quick as your anxiety is running, I'm going to say, okay, I'm sitting here. I see my monthly calendar here. I see my blinds here. I have three window panes. I have blackout curtains. I, I wonder how many blinds there are. Um, there are probably, I bet there are 30 blinds in this deck. Like boom, 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 boom. What do I see in the environment? I'm going to fill up my head with so much neutral, meaningless nonsense that I don't have room to be thinking about this scary thought. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to springboard into other distraction coping mechanisms to actually make my thoughts change. So what I do with my kids is I think of really elaborate stories. So I have all girls, so it always ends up being about like mermaids and unicorns, but like I'll tell them, like I'll jump in bed with them, cuddle them and say, let's think of a story. So pretend you're Ariel or pretend you're a mermaid and you're best friends with Ariel. What do you think your shells would look like? What do you think your mermaid tail looks like? How many colors does it have on it? Ooh, let's go on a mermaid adventure. What are the fish that you see? What are the other sea animals that you see? Do you have any other animal friends? Like, do you have a crab friend, a fish friend? Let's give them names. Let's think of all of these other random details and I'll kind of help them get into this guided imagery. And then you know, after a couple of minutes of me kind of starting the story and thinking about all the things, then I'll give them a kiss and say, okay, you finish your mermaid adventure and have a dream about that. And just get them kind of thinking about something else. And then you can also like turn on more songs. If you have the recordings of you singing songs, any of those other like separation anxiety tips and tricks you can implement after that, after you give a little bit of that encouragement. A lot of times kids will use that against you because they're, again, they're just testing boundaries. And so with Maddie, I I could tell the difference between the, like, she walks into my room and she's crying and shaken up and says, I had a nightmare versus when she kind of like strolls into my room and she's like, mom, I had a nightmare. And I'm like, (laughs) and so Tuning into your mom gut, dad gut to say like, what is needed here? I'm going to provide what's needed. Even just by the questions that you're asking, like, I feel very confident that you guys know the difference between when she actually needs something and when she's just trying to get a little bit of extra. Mm. There's always going to be some trial and error with that. But the more you can discern, like, does my little one actually need more comfort and support? or are they just milking it, then you can change course based on what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Night lights. Do we like them or no? Love them. After about two years old, again, that's when their imaginations start to get scary. That's when they feel very small in a very big world. So having a nightlight, the biggest risk of a nightlight is just it keeps their room illuminated longer and they're playing with their stuffed animals or reading books for longer, but the benefit of feeling some of that comfort and security and not feeling as scared in a dark room, mm-hmm. I think far outweighs any of the risks. Cause you're probably going to have a kid that is up for a little while before they fall asleep anyway. Mm-hmm. And do we put too much pressure to have the door closed? Cause Lou wanted the door open. And for some reason that really bothered me. I was like, we got to close too, the door. I, I don't know why. Um, I, it really just depends on the kid. 
my second, she did way better with the door open. She could kind of like hear our noises, know that we weren't too far away, still feel kind of close and connected. And so for her, that was a great like boundary of like, you, it's still bedtime. You have to go to bed. You need to stay in your crib. She was also a ninja. So she like started climbing out of her crib at 18 months. And so having the door open was a good bargaining chip. Uh, like you will have the door open as long as you stay in your room or with your oldest, like if she wants the door open, I would just try it for a while. If she's Mm -hmm. like, calling out to you. If it's more disruptive, then you can say like, look, you can have the door open, but you have to be quiet in your room. If you can't be quiet, if the door open is too distracting, it's too exciting, then we're going to close it. But if she wants the door open and can handle that privilege, I guess, as I say in air quotes, (laughs) like that, that's fine. You can kind of just see how it goes. So my, my fear for that is though, like the baby is then going to wake her up in the middle of the night when the baby cries. And like, that's my big fear with the door open. For me, it was, we give her an inch, she takes a mile before we know it. She's in our bed and I'm sleeping in the crib or something. I was just like, oh, like, let's not give her this. But to your point, I guess it's just make these small concessions and then set parameters and then it'll be fine. And Actually, Shane, so you saying, you know, you give them that inch and take a mile. I had a few people write in and this is my last listener question, but several people wrote in about how they started bringing their kids into their bedrooms at night and now their kids will only sleep in their bedrooms at night. How do you reset? How do you reverse that? Because that is a nightmare. Yes, totally. And so I think to both of your points, like that's the name of the game in parenting. Like you give an inch and they're going to see how much they can take. And so I always kind of am framing, like, what are the little concessions that I can do that aren't really negatively impacting me? Right? Like if you leave the door open at night, like it's not really negatively impacting you. If you have a kid that ends up in your bed between you kicking you all night, like, yeah, that negatively impacts you. (laughs) So I'm going to draw a harder line on getting, letting my kids be in bed with me, but be more loosey goosey about like, you want the pink cup halfway full with water and these two songs and the door open. Like, yep, all you can call all of those shots because it doesn't actually negatively impact my life. And so kind of using that as the barometer of like, what can I handle? How many concessions can I give before like, hold on, this has gone way too far. A, my sleep is very important to me. I don't, I've never been one to co-sleep. I also have so much anxiety. And so like, I was the mom that would wake up in the middle of the night with a pillow between my legs and be like, where's the baby? Where's the baby? And my husband's like, she's in her crib in her room. And I'm like, okay. So like sleeping was Never a good option for me for so many reasons, but also like as my kids have gotten older or wanted to just climb into bed and especially being in the middle of the night, if my kid comes in with a nightmare, I would let them climb into bed with me. But I always just made myself like, we've got five minutes to cuddle in my bed and then we're back out. And yes, she wants to stay, but just setting the standard and the boundary, like mom and dad's bed is just for mom and dad. Like, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I'll come snuggle with you in your bed, but it's really important that mom and dad's bed is just for us. Um, or like mommy cuddle with daddy at night, even though we're like, could not be farther apart. And then just like, Nope, this isn't what we do. Um, if yeah. you already, if, 
if you already have a kid in your bed and you're needing to transition them out, I recommend one of two things, either setting a bed up on your floor. Like you can't be in our bed anymore, but you can be on the floor. I'm right here. Or if you need mom to come sleep with you at night, cause that's what you've been used to for your whole entire life. I'm going to come sleep with you in your bed and then come back in the middle of the night to my own bed and then slowly scale back of like, now I'm just laying down with you until you fall asleep. And then I'm going back to my own bed. Now I'm just laying down with you for 15 minutes. And then I'm coming back to my own bed. Now I'm just laying down with you for five minutes and a quick snuggle. And then I'm off. So it kind of just depends. Like for some parents, it's easier to just rip off the bandaid for some, they really don't want to disrupt things too much. But if the ultimate goal is to get your kids into their own spaces, which I think everybody sleeps better that way, then there are a couple different ways you can do it. That's amazing. Shane, do you have any? Chrissy, kill all my questions. No, I think this is good. I can't yeah. wait to edit this just so I can <laughs> hear it again and write down all the yeah. stuff that I'm, I'm going to forget maybe. Yeah, no, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for being so concise and efficient and for answering everything so well. You had so many great tips. But Chrissy, where can listeners go to find you online, see your courses, all those things? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok at the peaceful sleeper. So it's at the dot peaceful dot sleeper. I have everything that anybody could ever want and need. I feel like, uh, so I have over 25 guides. I have courses for baby sleep. I have newborn sleep four to 24 month course. I have guide packs. I do consultations. I have an adult insomnia sleep course, and I just launched a new peaceful mama course. That's all about just like, how do we find, cause I've been a therapist for 11 years. So like, how do we find our footing? How do we find peace and empowerment in motherhood? How do we have healthier relationships with our spouses and work through depression and anxiety and body image issues? So I have kind of like this new subset that's for like moms and dads, mental health. One-stop shopping. Yeah, I know. I need to like figure out how to condense it and not be the jack of all trades. But like, I also want everybody to have answers for the little things that they need. No, absolutely. That is fantastic. And I'm so happy that we did finally get to do this. We appreciate your time so much and all the best for the rest of your week, Chrissy. Thank you. You too. Absolutely. All right. Bye, Chrissy. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. There you have it, Chrissy. See, okay. So many of the things that she said, you know, it's good information. There's kind of new tactics that she spoke about. But with so much of it when it comes to sleep, I feel that a lot of it is intuitive. And then hearing somebody like that who is certified, do you know, to know what to do when a kid is trying to go to sleep, it's so reassuring to hear somebody else say those things and hear an expert say those things. And it it really made me feel good. Sometimes you just need to hear what you already know Mm -hmm. said by someone else. Yeah. Even going through it the second time, honestly, I thought we were going to be way better with sleep with Betty this time, but I still need to hear those things. And then obviously with Lou, we're in like uncharted territory. So, but now let's get on to Catherine. Let's do it. My idol, my your guru. Well, your bedtime pal, in a <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah, that's better. <laughs> She's my bedtime pal. Thank you for your help, helping me find the right words. She's my bedtime pal, but she's helping literally millions and millions of people. This was so much more than just a talk about like, I don't know, sleep stories. She really is helpful on anxiety relief. She's a yoga, a yogi. She's a yogi. 
She's a yogi, and she has a very fascinating uh, condition called a... Aphantasia. And that means she has problems picturing things in her head, yet she's a novelist. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting getting into that on many levels. But before we get to this interview, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip spirit solves the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. And I'm saying it right now, it's the official drink of Christmas. Yeah, and the official drink, really, of this Family Treat podcast. It is. But as a non-drinker, it never feels good when your only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. It's humiliating. It is, and really, if you're pregnant at Christmas, I was there last year. You don't want to be left out of the fun. And with Seedlip, you're going to feel just like everybody else. Like an adult, a grown man or woman. And this is the drink you deserve. Whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs, Seedlip offers a drink for every type of drinker. It's crafted using a bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals. And each of Seedlip's three variants, which are Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grow 42, are alcohol-free and pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic. They can also be used, though, to make more complex cocktails like Shane and I like to get into. And you'll find those in the Seedlip cocktail book or on their Instagram account, at Seedlip underscore NA. So head on over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and if you use the promo code thisfamilytree10, you're going to get 10% off of your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. Again, go to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use thisfamilytree10 for 10% off. This offer is available in Canada and the US. But we are also supported by Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs make the most comfortable, luxurious bras for your boobs. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so eloquent. But whether you are a nursing mother, they have the best selection of nursing bras, which actually Shane got me onto when I was pregnant with Lucy. You're welcome. And if you are not a nursing mother, if you have never had a baby and if you never plan to, they now have their everyday collection. These bras have no clips, but the same comfort that I get with my nursing bras. What if you're a nurse who's not a mom but looks after babies at the hospital? Well, I'd still go with the everyday collection probably. So you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or head to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. And regardless of the website you go to, if you use the promo code thisfamilytree20, you're going to get 20% off your order, which is huge and which saves you a lot in such a necessary thing. What if you're a pregnant doctor? If you're a pregnant doctor, I'd go for either. Probably one of each. Okay. So again, that is bravadodesigns.com or ca.bravadodesigns.com and this family tree 20 for 20% off. Okay, but now let's get to our interview with Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a pleasure. I'm always fascinated to know somebody in your position who has an incredibly multifaceted career. How do you define your job description? Oh, that's interesting. You know, it makes me think of my business card. (laughs) I am an architect of cozy. Oh, I like that. (laughs) You know, I'm a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher, and I'm a writer and I'm a podcaster, but all of it is about helping people create moods and habits that make them feel safe, relaxed, healthy, whole. So I feel like there's lots of different ways that I can maneuver that, Mm -hmm. but mostly it's all about create, helping people create this mood for themselves. 
Do you do that because maybe at some point in your life you suffered from anxiety or distress, or is it because your superpower is being so calming? You know, I sometimes joke that um, as yoga teachers, those of us who can't do, we teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people say, oh my gosh, I need yoga so much. I need an hour a day. And I go, oh, that's cute. I need five hours <laughs> a day. A day. Um, so that's why I a teacher. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, you're right to tap into that. There's a lot of me that is connected to this feeling of needing to be safe and feel secure. And I think even the storytelling, that was something I taught myself to do as a four-year-old. And I think probably not a lot of four-year-olds would have to have a coping mechanism like that. Although maybe some maybe do, but um, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. And even before Flint, Michigan was famous for having poisoned water, which it still does and is a huge travesty. Back in the 80s, Flint was still a really difficult place to grow up. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that need to feel safe and to sort of feel held and cradled mm-hmm. started something in me then. And it led me to become a yoga teacher, to become a meditation teacher, and um, then to be able to reach out with my voice and my writing and hold more people. Mm -hmm. And I like the architect of cozy. And I think of the word cozy and what that means to different people. Have you heard of hygge, that term? Okay, so it's it's very much like that, and that's what I feel we're living. Wait, what at. is it? I don't know that term. It, is it is it Danish? I don't know where what, it comes from. What does from. it mean though? It, it is yeah. It is, it essentially means coziness. That feeling of like warmth. It's it's a feeling more than anything. You can probably describe it better than I can. You know, I used to teach um, a yoga theme on it years before I even started writing, which is sort of like this site, because I do still live in Michigan, and we have really long winters. And there's this kind of culture in parts of the world that have more hygge, Mm -hmm. that is you get through the long, cold days through a combination of comradeship or companionship and comforts. So they are sort of the small pleasures that make you feel safe or comfortable or really enjoy on a sensory level the experience that you're having. So yeah, definitely. Those are my people. It's a little bit hobbity, you know, like Mm -hmm. hobbits like to lay inside and watch the snowfall outside (laughs) and then have extra meal and sit by the fire. That's the idea. Absolutely. Yes. And I I find your stories are very much like that. They're so you know, there's so much sensory, there's everything when you really get into it. And that really helps people relax and calm. But I was so curious, as an architect of cozy, where does your idea of cozy come from? Does it come from, you know, your idea of cozy when you were growing up? Does it come from your yoga background? I think it's probably, at least the good news is to me as a storyteller is that it seems to hit on a universal level for most people that there are certain experiences that when humans have them, we go, "Mm, that's good. (laughs) Um, So I think a lot of that just comes from being a really like aware person walking through the world. The yoga training has taught me to be really mindful and deliberate when I step out into the world or when I just move through my life Mm -hmm. and find these moments that I can sort of peel back the layers on and go, doesn't that feel nice to think about that or look at that? And for most people, that's pretty universal. It's not going to be 100%. But I think it just comes from this, we have these common experiences as as humans that make almost all of us feel better. You have a very interesting condition. And I'm going to say it wrong, but I'm going to read it anyway and still say it wrong. It's called aphantasia. Is that correct? 
I think I, I say aphantasia. You probably um, say it right. <laughs> I think like typical and atypical and fantasia and aphantasia. I see. Um, and so aphantasia means that I cannot visualize anything. I have no inner eye. I can't see anything in my head. And this is about one to 2% of the population has this condition. But most of the times we don't know that we have it because we didn't think that y'all were being literal when you said, you know, imagine, picture yourself on a beach and see the sunset. We didn't think you meant like, see it. Like you guys can see it. We didn't get that. We thought you meant like, think through the circumstances because that is what our brains do. So a lot of people are surprised by that because they feel like when they hear my stories, they can see it like a movie playing out in front of them, but I can't. And um, one of the most exciting things for me was to have the book illustrated because I thought I can't wait to see what this town looks like with this village of nothing much. And when I talked with the illustrator, you know, she kind of asked me for some more cues and I said, you're really gonna have to go it alone on yeah. this one. I can't picture anything. So um, it's a condition that I think makes me really present. It does have some sad sides to it. The first time that I explained it to my wife and I told her that I can't like close my eyes and picture her face. I can't picture anybody's face. And she said, not even mine. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard to say, no, if I could picture anybody's face, it would be yours, but I can't see anything. There's just, it's like being colorblind or not having a sense of taste. I can't think my way around it. It's just the way my brain works. So when you're not with your wife, you can't picture her face at all? No. Whoa. I can't right now close my eyes and picture my face. Right. But you can remember, like if we were if you were to see me again tomorrow, you'd remember my face once you saw it? Yes. I, okay. I, I, I don't have like face blindness. I can recognize. But whenever I'd watch TV shows like a cop drama and they'd go and do that face kit thing where they mm. describe, I'd mm. be like, that's not real. How could, <laughs> yeah. how could anybody do that? That's you so know, and I like know like the facts of my wife's face. Like I know that mm-hmm. one eye is like a little bit gray and the other eye is a little bit brown and she has brown hair, but I couldn't like draw it or anything. It, that's so it's interesting. That set of facts in my head. See, that's so bizarre to me. So of course you are the author of Not- Nothing Much Happens in the podcast uh, of the same mm-hmm. name. How do you create these incredibly visual and, like I said, sensory stories if you can't picture anything? I have a heart because I like to write as well, and I can only write because I can picture things. I don't get that. I think our brains are just adaptive. You know, this, if this is the way your brain has been for all time, then you are always, like, figuring out the world in the way that computes with your own programming. Mm-hmm. Along with aphantasia, I also have a condition that often overlaps with aphantasia that's called um, severely deficient autobiographical memory, which just like it sounds means I don't remember a whole lot of my own life. Yeah. But I kind of feel like these two conditions line up to make me the person who writes these stories because because I don't, I can't visualize and I don't have a lot of memory, I've got the present moment to sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the present moment becomes really rich. Mm-hmm. So then when I call on it in my stories, I can still be really creative. It's just not picture-based. Then I can say, well, what does that really feel like or taste like? And I can really put myself in that moment because sort of moment to moment is is what I, I really have to work with in my brain. And so that that's why you're so prolific, why you can write so many stories, you think? I don't know if it, if that necessarily has anything to do with it. I think probably most 
most writers who write as much as me or write more than me don't have these conditions. I just think that that's sort of what makes me the perfect person Mm -hmm. to work in this kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Because my storytelling, because it's not, there's nothing happening. (laughs) We really need to have this rich sensory detail experience. So that makes each moment has to be, you know, layered with all these different Mm -hmm. aspects of how things taste or look or smell or sound. And uh, because it's not action based. So I just think it lines me up to be the right kind of storyteller for this. Is there a secret sauce to when you are writing your stories? Because obviously the goal is to make people fall asleep. But uh, I'm sure while you're writing, you want to make your story still somewhat interesting, but maybe not too interesting. What's the line when you go, oh, this story is actually too good now. These people, are, are they're going to want to see what happens next. But I don't want to bore them where they just don't even want to tune in the next episode. Yeah, that's a good question. So I do think of this as a recipe. And I think you're right to mention boredom, because I think that that is a misunderstanding that people have when they try to write content to help people sleep. Um, I don't think it should be boring because you actually need, your brain needs something to grab onto. And I'm just going to mention a little bit of neuroscience here, but it's really easy to understand. There's this part of your brain that takes over basically when your brain's not doing anything and it's called your default mode network. And it's like the background static noise of your brain. And so when you don't have a task, your brain slips into its default mode. And this you'll really feel if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you feel that click of your brain going, it's going through the things you need to do. It's sort of that got a brain. I got to do this. I got to do that. That's your default mode. And in order to get out of default mode, you have to give your brain a job to do and shift into what they call the task positive network. So following along with the idea of the story is that task. And you've probably had that experience where you're laying in bed and you're in a really uncomfortable position and you're reading your book, but you can't stay awake, Mm -hmm. keep dropping your book because, and you're not even really picking up what's going on. Your eyes are moving. You can't remember the next day what you read. (laughs) Then you put your book down, you get as comfortable as you can be. And now you can't sleep. What happened in that moment was the task stopped and the default mode network to kick back on. So my stories to get back to that recipe always have to, they have to be about a soothing, comfortable idea. I'm never going to write about something that's anxiety producing. (laughs) Then they need to have an element of nostalgia or familiarity where people can, even if they haven't experienced that themselves, they can relate to it Mm -hmm. and they know that it would feel good. Mm -hmm. And then it has to have all these rich sensory details because that's really what their brains can stick to and create that task of thinking my way through the story. You know, I often train people in the podcast. If you wake up in the middle of the night, don't necessarily need to listen again. But think back through the, anything you can remember from the story, because that will shift you out of default mode, drop you back into task mm-hmm. mode, you'll fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So for you, how do you stay motivated? Because I'm a creative, I, I, I direct, write direct commercials, music videos, but entertaining people is something I, I really want to do. And that's mm-hmm. what keeps me motivated. For you, is your goal for people to actually come back and finish the story? It's such an interesting thing as a creative, right? Mm -hmm. It's a weird place to be in because I have to say my goal is always to help people fall asleep, which means that sometimes I know that things that I work really hard on will not at all be heard or read. (laughs) And in some ways it takes the pressure off. Sometimes I'm fussing with uh, a word or a paragraph. And then I remember they're sleeping. Like, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so in that way, I feel kind of free. There's nobody sort of policing me as I write, which is lovely. But, you know, I hear from so many people all over the world who tell me, you know, not only that they've been insomniacs for years and now they just slept eight hours for an entire week straight and it completely changed their life or that they're getting off their medication, Mm -hmm. but that they're, you know, listening to me while they're in, I heard from somebody this week who was getting some radiation done and for a cancer treatment and she had to be completely still and the doctor would tell her to be still, but the anxiety made her itch and scratch. And so she brought in her headphones and she was like, I just sat and listened to you and I was still. I hear from people who tell me that they are the survivors of violent attacks and sexual assaults. And they used to be afraid to go to bed at night and have night terrors all night. And now they look forward to going to bed Mm -hmm. and they feel safe and excited when they sleep and they feel so much better. So when you ask, what's my motivation? Mm-hmm. that's always first. Mm-hmm. I always want to be that person who catches somebody and says, I'll be your safe landing, lay, lay right here. I'm watching over. Mm-hmm. Then the creative side is sort of in the background where I have been kind of noticing I'm on my sixth season. I want to tell bigger stories, but I also don't want to keep anybody up. So I'm writing a couple of books <laughs> that don't go along <laughs> with nothing that happens to sort of feed that creative part of me that just wants to tell a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never run out of motivation for the sleep stories because I just know what a difference it makes in people's lives. Now, hearing those stories, just you telling us, I mean, when people tell you, that must be so fulfilling to hear them. And of course, that would give you motivation to keep going. But before you even began, right, you you weren't, you didn't know it was going to get this big. Like, it's an, an enormously successful podcast. So, what made you think, yeah, I want to help people go to sleep. I want to write boring, not boring, but I want to write, (laughs) I want to write stories that don't have too much going on in them to help people sleep. Like, how'd you, why? Well, I, like I said, I've always told myself these stories since I was a little kid. And because I have this sort of technique built into my brain, I, I always joke, I sleep like it's my job, (laughs) eight hours, show up on time, don't take breaks. And that's why I've always been a good sleeper. And as I'm getting older, and I'm hearing from my students and my friends, people telling me all the time that they can't sleep. And I kept thinking, I, I know how to do that. How do I transfer this? I think when you're a teacher, you're always looking for a way to teach. Mm -hmm. So thinking I know how to fix this but how do I get it to you and that was part of it and on the other side as like a reader I've also just noticed this kind of trend in fiction in the last 10 years I call it uh, despair porn where it's like the most upsetting combination of circumstances crammed into one book with like the least redeemable Mm -hmm. characters and I would read these books and I couldn't i close my book and just, I have a stomach ache trying to fall asleep. I think especially for really empathic people who are very connected to other people's emotions, it's really hard to find a way to put your head in someplace nice after you read that stuff. And so part of me kept thinking, why is it gauche to write about something that isn't awful? Mm -hmm. Why, why is that? Why can't there be stories about things that are good without seeming, you know, naive, there are still lots of beautiful things that are happening every day. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that to exist for some, I kept thinking if I'm looking for those stories, somebody else is. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had this technique and it kind of came together. I was up ironically in the middle of the night with a sick dog and I was sitting on the floor with my beagle in my lap and I was like, oh, it's a podcast. And I remember like buying a microphone, 
on the floor at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning. We launched like six weeks later. Wow. That's amazing. And have you noticed an increase in the popularity of your podcast since this pandemic has broken out? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're getting more. I mean, every time I release a new episode, we break a record. So yeah, there's, you know, tens of thousands, sometimes a hundred thousand people down downloading, you know, every night where yeah. we just are seeing so many people from all over the world. I mean, we are having this sort of universal experience mm -hmm. to different degrees. So I think, you know, people all over the world are having this need right now. Sometimes it's people's first experience with insomnia. Other times it's people's lifelong problem. Mm -hmm. And you, I mean, you give so much and you put so much work into this and into helping other people sleep and feel calm and feel safe and cozy. But I mean, it's a pandemic. It is so difficult for all of us. It's if it's not difficult, it's at least new. And yeah. while you're giving so much, where do you, like, how do you fill up your own cup? And where do you find the strength and the coziness in your life? Yeah, that's so essential, especially for those of us who are carers in this moment mm -hmm. that we're even if just parents or, you know, people who are caring for other family members that can only uh, pour from that cup for so long before you got to refill it. So I feel really grateful that I have 20 years of yoga built into me because I don't have to like talk myself into getting on the mat. It's mm -hmm. just a well dug groove in my brain. So certain care practices are so established in my life that I just get into them. But I also see my therapist. <laughs> I take my meds. I eat regularly. I get lots of water. I get outside. I try to spend time virtually with friends and family when I can and time with my wife. I'm kind of doing all those simple little bits that are really important actually to just staying well enough to give. Honestly, giving is sort of the part that fills me up the most. Mm -hmm. I have been able to teach online through yoga and in my studio, I was able to teach for two months. We just got shut down again last week, but, um, that was the best part. That part always fills me back up. And mm -hmm. your life, like you're, you're releasing so many stories, you're writing all the time. Is your life perfectly scheduled out all the time? Is that how you function? Um, I have really um, regimented writing days and I stick to those like glue because like any writer, if there's a possibility of me being able to not write, I will take it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, I just know that when this moment on my calendar comes, I have to write by this time in the day, even that story needs to be done. And then I can be pretty disciplined about that. But, you know, that's kind of the nice thing about the podcast is it happens every other week there has to be a story ready. With the books I mentioned, those are a little cobwebby right now because, <laughs> because no deadline. you know, it's easy to talk about. I was just saying to someone the other day, when there's something that you need to get going on and maybe you feel a little intimidated um, and you talk yourself out of it. I found it so useful in the past just to like for two weeks, 15 days, maybe even a month, set a timer once a day and do that thing for 20 minutes mm -hmm. because the muscle memory of it comes back and you get over the part where you're intimidated about it. So, you know, like with this couple of novels I'm writing, I realized I was like, I need to do like 20 minutes a day for a month just to get the muscle memory of me going, I know how to do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. And then that seems like it fuels the creativity. Mm -hmm. Right. And sleep is like that, too, isn't it? Where if you get in the habit of listening to your podcast every night, it will get easier because your mind will get used to this is the voice we fall asleep to. Right. It's a little bit Pavlovian, mm -hmm. you know, it is that sort of setup and response. So absolutely, sleep improves over time. This is just a human nature thing. We get better at the stuff we do um, repeatedly. And I heard you talking on another program about 
the pandemic and how you try to intentionally create joy in your life in little moments in the day. You know, you try to slip in deep breathing on your mat or something like that. What are ways that the common person, I don't know really how to sit there and just start getting myself into a guided meditation. What are ways that stressed out parents like Shane and I can maybe implement joy and relaxation into our daily lives? Here's a really simple technique. And I did not invent this technique. It's just one I read about several years ago that I started using and I find it really useful. There's three steps to it. The first step is that something good happens, which once you start looking for it, you realize is actually happening all the time. It could be something really simple, like, oh, I'm thirsty and here's a cold glass of water. And boy, that feels really good when I take a drink or I slide into my sheets at night and they feel nice and cool and it just feels so good. Do you need me to stop for the chihuahua? <laughs> if, if, you, if you have a way to make him stop, that <laughs> Please hold. Yeah. One second. No problem. Lady hey, bird. puppy. Ladybug. Hey. Who's this? That's Ladybug. <laughs> Ladybug. Ladybug. Aww. So cute. I know. And, you know, as far as she knows, it works. The male lady has never murdered us. <laughs> there you so, go. Thank you, know, you she's like, Yeah. Try to argue with results. <laughs> well, that bark sounded way loud, like a way bigger dog than that little guy. Or Seven little pounds. girl. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, where were okay. we? Uh, the- oh, um, I was just asking about how we can create joy and comfort and relaxation in our everyday lives. So there's three steps to it. And the first step is something good happens. Mm-hmm. It could be something really simple and small. Someone is kind to you. Someone is patient with you. Something tastes delicious. You step outside and the air smells really fresh. You notice the colors of the sunset. Your favorite song comes on. Something small. Once you start looking for this stuff, by the way, it kind of primes a pump and you start seeing it everywhere. So that's the first step, something good happens. The second step is, and this is the hard step, you notice, you are aware, (laughs) that's good, that tastes delicious, that music sounds beautiful, my child is sleeping, (laughs) whatever it is. You have to take the moment to actually feel in your body because it is a physical sensation associated with it that something good is happening. The third step is that you just say it out loud or in your head, and you could just say, hmm, that's nice. Real simple. Something good happens, you notice, and you say, that's nice. Mm -hmm. I started doing this a couple years ago, and I found myself saying it 2,500 times a day. Yeah. Where I'd step outside with my dogs, and, you know, flowers would be in bloom, and I would see it, and I'd think, oh, that's nice. It's not heavy lifting. You don't have to meditate or sit on a cushion to do it. It's just this moment of you dropping into the world as it's happening and acknowledging that still good things are happening, that there are moments of enjoyment to be had. But it's just training you to look because I think the opposite is also true. It's really easy to get on that everything sucks train. There's a lot of momentum behind it. And you start you start to just sort of see everything that's awful because Probably if it feels strange to say to yourself, that's nice, I bet it doesn't feel strange to say, oh my God, that's awful. We've probably already said that 50 times today. So, you know, our brains have this thing called the negativity bias. It's a leftover of evolution, which means that we give more weight to things that are scary and upsetting than things that are enjoyable and relaxing. That's just because our ancestors, if they were running across the savanna and they didn't stop to smell a flower, no big deal. But if they didn't stop to run away from a predator, they might not have gotten their genes into the next generation. So worry worse had more kids. 
So that's in our brains. So in order for us to actually see the world a little bit more as it is, we need to deliberately pay more attention to good things. And that can be a habit you need to, you know, engage like doing a bicep curl, but for the part of you that says, oh, that's nice. The video that I was introduced to you by was, uh, it was called how tips on how to de-stress during the pandemic. But one of the tips was if you're feeling really overwhelmed to count three colors in the room, make note of one sound. And there, there was another thing. And I know you're going to say that works, but does it really work? Cause I feel like I've heard it in what about Bob? And I almost <laughs> thought they were joking. And then you said it, I was like, maybe that's a real thing. Could you just explain how, how that works? So what's going on in that moment is that you are noticing your senses. Our senses tell us what's happening right now. Our thoughts are almost always about the future or the past. They're very frequently also not true. So it's kind of a scary way to perceive the world. If you're only seeing the world through your thoughts, it can be a really distorted lens. But your senses are telling you the story of what is happening now. Also, our anxiety tends to push us into what ifs and all these possibilities. But again, our senses root us in what's actually happening now. So as a way to fend off anxiety, as well as just enjoy your life more, being in your senses, which is another way to say mindfulness, sensefulness might be a better description because we're deliberately trying to get out of our head and into our bodies. That's the idea that it. it's going to ground you in the present moment. You notice more of what's happening right now. And that's a place you make better decisions from. When you feel yourself spiraling or when you, it's always easier to notice than other people. When somebody else is spiraling and you notice that they're not making any sense, you can see that they're not connected to the moment. They're living in hypotheticals. And you kind of wish you could say, just pay attention to what's happening now. That's what's happening with them. It's what's happening with us too. Mm -hmm. And 2020, I mean, has there ever been a year where we would feel more like spiraling off into hypotheticals? Yeah. I, remember I heard a story a little while ago about a dog who lived through 9-11. It was a, an assistant dog that helped a man who was blind get out of one of the towers. It was on the This Is Love podcast and it's a fantastic story. And at the end of that day, when that man got home with his dog, he called the, I think it was a leader dogs for the blind, which we have one in Michigan, which is a really great group. And he said, what should I do for my dog? Will she be traumatized after this? And they said, is your dog injured? And he said, no, she's fine. And they said, oh, she'll be fine. Dogs don't do what ifs. They live in the present. See, these wow. seem like such simple solutions, right? Like finding the good in the day and appreciating just the little things as they come and living in the present. Why do so many people get it wrong? Because see, I feel like I have more what ifs maybe than Shane, but I feel like I have also a way easier time of finding a million things in a day to be like, oh, this is the best. Like, look at that happening. And then I feel that he's, you know, something negative will happen. He's kind of maybe waiting, correct me if I'm wrong, but like waiting for the next negative thing. Whereas I'm like, oh, that song. Oh, look how cute the babies are. Like, no, I'm trying to avoid the next negative thing just because I feel like you're so in the positive mm -hmm. that sometimes you'll neglect future things that problems that could arise. Right. Right, but th there's got to be a happy medium, and I'm I'm just saying where people go wrong in mm -hmm. in trying to do these things because you know it's so simple to say, well, just appreciate the things as they come. Are they just not doing it? They're not training themselves. Like, how are they screwing up so bad? Well, this just got a lot more interesting than the last couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, human behavior and human experience is complex. 
we can't boil it down to one technique or one theory. And there's definitely not a right way or a wrong way to be a human. But, you know, we are constantly exposed to so much information and we have to be in that position of then labeling it, categorizing. That's bad. That's good. Mm. This makes me feel upset. This makes me feel, you know, joyful. And that system can just get overwhelmed. We can also probably acknowledge I was never trained as a kid in school to know anything about my mental health, to have any techniques to deal with anxiety. I didn't find this stuff out until I was older and deliberately went looking for it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of stuff that people just, I sometimes say in yoga, you know, there's these two ends of the, of the spectrum. One is reactivity where you freak out. The other side of the spectrum over here is when you go numb and tune out and right in the middle, there's an option called observation. And most people don't know it exists. They don't even know that there's an option there to just observe without reacting because we're not trained in it. So I think sort of the big answer to that question of why does so many people not find (laughs) this stuff useful is that we don't talk about it as a society and we're not trained in it as people. If we find our way into it, it's because we really, you know, deliberately did that. And then it's tricky to keep up with in a world where other people aren't living that way. Mm -hmm. So as a partner, how do you, I mean, I'm assuming that your partner gets down sometimes as everybody does. So how do you try to, you know, help your partner see the good in things and try to get back on that happy, look at all the beauty in the world train? (laughs) You know, I think the first thing is to just validate her when she feels like everything does suck. Because, um, you know, the things that are terrible are terrible. And I feel like sometimes when we're trying to shift somebody's mood, they can end up just feeling like they didn't get heard. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to get really stuck in that place and they're not going to feel better. So I find as somebody who used to have a lot more codependent tendencies, which, you know, I really took uh, responsibility for other people's moods. I mean, I kind of built two careers out of that. So um, (laughs) I get that. But learning to step back and not own somebody else's feelings, just give my wife space where Mm -hmm. she's having a hard day, I can just kind of say, yeah, that does sound rough. Mm -hmm. And not try to get her to shift out of it. Because I've been in that place too. And that that place actually feels worse because it makes you feel like the emotions you have are not legitimate and you're not supposed to have them. I think when your partner's having a rough day, the first thing to do is just acknowledge them and let them have their say without trying to fix it at all. You know, if it persists and you kind of feel like maybe they might need more help than me, (laughs) then I think that's an important thing to be able to talk about Mm -hmm. too. You know, to say, this seems like it's going on for a long time or babe, you're you know, now it seems like anxiety, it's changing the way you're working or it's interfering with your sleep. Let's talk about getting more hands on board. For someone like me who's scared of the present, what's a good way to just dip your toe in the meditation water to start that routine, to get into it for first timers or people totally adverse to it? You know, it doesn't have to be a formal practice. If that part feels like intimidating to you, like I'm going to sit down on a cushion and then what happens? It can just be something really small. Like the next time you take a shower, you probably have like an order that you do things. Like first I wash my face and then I wash my hair and then I wash my body or whatever. Yeah. Take take your shower out of order. Do it the way that you never do it. It's going to force you to pay more attention. You've probably also had that experience where you take a shower and then you're like, wait, did I wash my hair? Because I wasn't actually present while it was happening. Or so another thing you can do the next time you sit down to eat a meal, eat with your non-dominant hand. Oh, that's interesting. Just a few bites. (laughs) 
you might not be able to get a hole through a whole meal. You'll get food all over your face. But it will force you to pay attention to something that you do automatically. So I think looking for those moments where you drop into that default network where I'm just on autopilot, what can, I always say that's the moment to throw a wrench in. How can I throw a wrench into this so that I actually have to pay attention to what I'm doing? You know, even if it's folding laundry or, you know, taking a walk with your kids, take a different route. This stuff all, all, also just really good for your brain. It actually helps you birth new baby neurons. You want that. It builds more neuroplasticity to shift out of those patterns. And is, uh, for beginners here, a guided meditation the best route? Well, you, you know, I think this is one of the big misunderstandings about, mes- about meditation. People think that they're supposed to have this experience of quiet in their brain. And then they sit down for like 30 seconds and they go, oh my God, it is not quiet in there. I obviously can't meditate or I'm doing it wrong. That's just means that it's not been properly explained to you. We are not trying to stop your thoughts. It's a little bit more like your thoughts are this rushing river and you've been bobbing along in it. And for a while, we're going to try to get you to climb out onto the bank. So the river keeps rushing. You're not trying to stop your thoughts, but you're standing in a position where you can observe it without being pulled. Being able to observe your own thoughts with some objectivity is a game changer. It is so different because it means that you can actually stop patterns that you weren't aware of before. A lot of times we just get thrown through these patterns. Every time he says this, I do this. That's a pattern. And I wasn't aware of it till I could step back and see the way my brain worked through that moment. So this is a reason why meditation is so powerful to be able to step back from it. I do recommend if you feel like I just don't know where to start to absolutely find a teacher. I have a free 30 day meditation on my yoga website. I could share with you guys. And it's just walks you through different templates for basic mindfulness. And then, you know, there's lots of great apps out there. I think the headspace app is a really great one. So I think the great news is there's a ton of tools now, but if you feel like you're just kind of stepping out into the wilderness and you're not sure what's going on, get a teacher because you probably will just feel like it failed and you'll give up. Yeah, I love the way you worded that. It actually made me understand meditation for the first time. Yeah, just kind of watching my thoughts go by. That's very cool. And I think we did try Headspace once or twice. And I remember him saying on it, allow yourself to think of that and then just watch it go kind of and allow your thoughts to pass. That does get hard. And I think it gets more difficult to do on the days where we have a lot going on or that have just been so stressful and then it's like we can't even relax with each other because we have so many things that we have to talk about and figure out. And I'm, I'm so curious from the people that you've worked with either from yoga or that have, you know, reached out because of nothing much happens. What is something that you find people do daily without even thinking about it that is so much more stress than it's worth? Because for me, I think it's this personally, my cell phone. Alex is holding up a phone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good point. You know, it was something I was teaching on this morning was this idea of there are moments where you need the energy to stand up and fight, but usually we have spent all of our energy before we get to that on stuff that doesn't matter. (laughs) So when the moments where we really need to be able to focus and pay attention and use our energy in a a very specific way, we don't have any of it. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. It sounds like, you know, for you, and I definitely have felt this way too, that the phone can just drain your energy. Um, sometimes reading what other people think about stuff that you're not involved with on the internet <laughs> is just this huge drain in the same way. Something I regularly re- uh, recommend is to just go ahead and take the apps off your phone, put your Kindle app 
where that social media app was. So you read books and <laughs> instead of that, and I was just thinking when you were saying, you know, that you're sometimes feel like there's so much going on in your head, you can't relax. Mm-hmm. This is a really nice technique. I use it all the time, set five minutes on the, on a timer, and then just write a complete brain dump onto a journal. Just mm-hmm. any thought that comes through your head, just get it out. And you don't have to save this stuff. You don't have to read it again. But a lot of times it feels like if it exists in the world, it doesn't have to live up here. And I often find that when I do that, a lot of the stuff that I felt like was really intense and I needed to stay on top of actually didn't matter, but I couldn't tell till I got it out of my head. And then I had a little space and I was like, oh, that's not actually a big deal. I can take care of that tomorrow. That's okay. That's not worth being, <laughs> let me move on and actually have a nice night with my wife. And I guess make sure to shred those papers afterwards because it could be quite embarrassing. <laughs> it is. It's not for But I wanted to talk about, uh, you were mentioning earlier, sleep being a job. And that's the way I look at it. And like when I'm doing a job, I'm always trying to think, am I doing this right? Am I doing it wrong? How can I do my job better? Like, is there a a guide to use your podcast correctly? You're you're a real analytical thinker, Shane. (laughs) 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 Not the coolest, chillest guy in the world. <laughs> I'm not this kind of thinker at all. So it just is really interesting to hear me th- like hear you think about it this way. I think however it feels good to you is good. If you fall asleep when you're meditating or when you're doing yoga, it just means you needed to sleep. You know, there's not like a wrong way or a right way to do this. There's just what works for you. And I think you kind of got to go easy on yourself and, you know, give yourself a little space for it to not be perfect. A lot of times people have asked me over when the book was first launched, did I consult specialists about how to sleep? And I thought, I get why people would ask this question, but it is the most natural process of your body. (laughs) I don't think we need experts. Mm -hmm. We should be, it should, should be easy. It shouldn't be something that you need a PhD to pull apart, but it's just that we have gotten so far away from our own natural intuitive processes that now we can't figure out how to connect back to them. Yeah. Um, so I think let yourself off the hook, Shane, you're doing good. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I probably am trying too hard. I remind myself of my daughter when I tell her to go to sleep, my daughter goes, <laughs> and it's like, she's trying so hard to pretend she's sleeping. And it's almost like that for me. I find I'm waking up every day now at 5 a.m. And then, you know, I'm supposed to get up at 7 to look after the kids because that's usually when they wake up. But then that two-hour period from 5 to 7, I'm so worried that I'm running out of time Mm -hmm. that I'm not going back to sleep. And I guess... So that's the... You've got to shift into that task mode. There has to be a place that you take your brain in that moment. If you let it wander, it will just keep running and racing. I would say the brain is like a truck with a brick on the gas pedal. It will run even if no one is there to steer it. So that is that moment. First, I would say also like your brain is listening to everything that you're saying. So um, maybe stop saying I wake up at five o'clock every morning. Right, Because my internal clock is like time to get up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like your brain's listening, going, oh, we wake up every day at five. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you might need to sort of reprogram that a little bit. But then in that moment when you wake up, first of all, stay really calm. It's cool. Every This is normal. Sleep comes in cycles. But you need to have a place to put your brain. Um, I always recommend stories because to me that's interesting. I'm a storyteller. I love narrative. So if you have a story that you love from the book or some happy memory, 
then you can put yourself in that. I, I off the one of the first stories I ever read or wrote was a block from home, which is just about coming home at the end of the day and locking the door behind you and kind of walking through the rooms of your house. And when I teach that as like a happy place meditation, I always have people sort of start on their sidewalk and it's your house. It doesn't actually have to be your house because maybe your house has a lot of unfolded laundry in it and you don't really want to be in there right now. How did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you have like a fantasy of, you know, a beach house or a cabin in the woods or a tiny home or whatever it is. You can be out there looking at your house. You walk yourself up the sidewalk, you get in, you lock the door and you walk through the rooms of your house, getting further and further inside. It gets darker and darker, quieter and quieter. And before you get that far, you will fall asleep. Mm -hmm. But you need to start setting this up in your brain that that's what you're going to do when you wake up. Mm -hmm. Don't let yourself sit there and ruminate because as you've experienced, you won't fall back asleep. Okay, Catherine, we're just going to take a quick break to let our audience know that we are supported by Hoppe. Hoppe makes amazing toys that are child safe, made of solid wood and have non-toxic finishes that are going to make playtime so fun and so educational. Let's face it, Christmas is coming. You need to order these toys now and we've got some good ones so first up we have the baby einstein deluxe magic touch piano it's an innovative wooden piano that makes real piano sounds when you touch the keys it's amazing lucy loves it she's had it for like a year and a half it's like fun for me to play with because i like coming up with new songs i'm way more musical than i ever thought you learned how to play kanye west on it <laughs> kanye west run away from kanye west well, you learn how to play his music on okay. it. You learn how to play Kanye West songs on it. And little ones can also learn how to play 11 different music styles, five different instruments, and explore the different embellishments that this piano comes with. You can play piano like a pro with their easy learn experience cards and follow along with these little color dots they have to play along with these melodies on your own. It is so cool and it is so easy to learn. The next item we've got up is the Hoppe Grow With Me Wooden Rocking Horse. It's a modern, streamlined children's rocking horse made with a natural wooden finish, a red mane, and a red seat plate. And this is a toy that's going to look amazing under a Christmas tree. A kid walks down, you see a horse under there, it's like... Oh, it's classic. The best scene ever. It's classic, and it has a removable safety bar and backrest added that can be easily taken away once your child develops stability and muscle control without the need for support. Babies and toddlers will love hours of enjoyment rocking and developing their sense of balance and coordination, as well as finding comfort in the repetitive movement and relaxation of rocking. We watch Lucy do it, Betty does it, and it really does help to soothe them. So to get 10% off of either of these toys, go to playwellcanada.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree10. And Alex, say those toys again one more time. All right, we have the Baby Einstein Deluxe Magic Touch Piano and the Grow With Me Wooden Rocking Horse. Get these or your child will just, you know, have a terrible Christmas. But wah, wah. let's get back to our interview with Catherine. Mm -hmm. I found this morning what I did was I'm like, oh, I'm not going to sleep. So I put on Nothing Much Happens podcast. <laughs> and I, it was 7 o'clock all of a sudden. And I was like, oh, I didn't sleep. But then I remembered I was at a dinner and I was having this conversation with someone. And I was like, oh, that's what happened in the podcast. So I was kind of half asleep, half awake. Does that happen often where people are just in the stories you're telling and it's this weird half sleep? Yeah. And I think that's still a really restful place to be. Mm -hmm. So I think that's good too. You know, even when you're in the moment where you're, when you're not sleeping, deep rest is still really, uh, really beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself sort of drifting back and forth through the narrative, that's, mm -hmm. that's groovy. You're not, you're not chewing on um, stressful thoughts, and that's the bonus. 
Right. Well, I do think we ha- it's time to wake our children up from their sleep right I now. Have, unless you have a, a final... I have, okay, I have one oh. question that's unrelated to really any of this, just more <laughs> to do with you know what you do and the fact that you are a very soothing public voice that puts people to sleep. Feel free not to answer it. I'm just, I can't, I have to ask. I'm so curious what this question is. <laughs> Shane's going to kill me later. No, uh, do you ever have, because you, you hear a lot from your fans, you are massively successful. Do you ever have people like, you know, they just become too comfortable with your voice and then they like, you know, like wild fans like in love with you or something or I just, that's all I picture because you're, you're so soft and calming on the mic. So I'm like, you must have some creepers, I guess she's trying yeah, to say, are there yeah. creepy fans reaching out to you who are sexually into you in some way? Thank you. Jane. Well, you know, this is something that even as a yoga teacher happens now and then where people, you help guide people to a place where they feel so good Mm -hmm. that they start projecting the way they feel about themselves and their experience onto you. So I will say that you are correct (laughs) when you assume that sometimes you feel this way. Um, But, you know, for the most part, it it just takes the form of people sort of feeling like they know me. And I kind of think that's a compliment. I don't feel creeped out by that. So, So I think that people probably feel like, they know me really well and that we're kind of friends and I, I don't mind that one bit. Yeah. No, well, awesome. just to put Alex's mind at ease, I am using it strictly for sleep and relaxation no, purposes. Not, and that's not what it is. But, but I wanted to know too, now that we're, now that we've extended here a little bit, uh, when are you going to quit everything else? And is this just going to be your full-time job? Cause I have to think this success is kind of unprecedented in the podcast world. Maybe like 0.1% of podcasts have your type of, downloads when do you just say i'm gonna sit back and just enjoy that and that's all you do i got big dreams i Mm -hmm. got a lot you know that i want to do more stories i want to tell so you know having a book published and then having it published in 33 countries around the world it is absolutely beyond my wildest dreams which to me is just a sign that i need to dream wilder so i have really big ideas still with where nothing much happens can go um Right now, I feel like the fate of my yoga studio and my time as a teacher is kind of not in my hands because of COVID. So we are closed right now and hopefully we'll be able to reopen. But, you know, if at some point I teach or I write more than I teach, I think I could be really happy with Mm -hmm. I have a lot of stories still to tell. If you had to pick one, what would you what would you go with? I don't think I could pick. Mm -hmm. I like that. Teaching is my heart. I've done that full time for 17 years, but I feel like the show, it does good on an exponential level for people that I can't reach when I'm just teaching in my yoga studio. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm glad I don't actually have to pick that. Right. Well, congratulations with all your success. I've heard rumors of it being animated. I don't know. Things are coming and I'm very, uh, (laughs) there's a wink. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, congratulations on everything. And thank you so much for having this podcast. Yes. I tried to listen to other ones of a similar nature. I found them to be terrible, to be honest. They just didn't mm-hmm. hit the mark in the way yours does. So everyone, please check out this podcast. And for listeners that want to you know, be impacted by Catherine's soothing voice and creative stories, Catherine, where can they find you on the podcast network, on social media, whatever? Right. We're sort of all over so- social medias. If you just search for Nothing Much Happens or Nothing Much Happens Pod, you can go to nothingmuchhappens.com. 
You can find us on any podcast or podcatcher that you use. We're pretty much all over the place, but I'll send you guys to the link to that 30 day meditation. It's free. So if you want to put it in the show notes, if people want to use that too. So we could do a swipe up for that and you'd be okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Okay, take it easy on yourselves over there. I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Once we finished that interview, I felt sleepy after. Like, I truly did. She's a very calming presence. She's so calming. And honestly, I think she is so admirable how she does her job. I don't know, because that is so much writing. Obviously, we know how much goes into a podcast. That's a ton of work. So she's everything you always wanted to be. She is. And she's as chill as you've ever wanted to be. So she's like, you know, the ideal versions of both of us. Yeah, I'd like you to be that chill. I'm pretty chill, Shane. I'm more chill than you are. Oh, painting the fireplace? Did you know? How was I not chill, Shane? I had the music going. I was dancing. I was having the time of my life painting that fireplace today. Well, then you weren't chill. I made you unchill, I guess. Maybe you did. I'll blame you. I'm sorry. Our little fighting aside, let's get to (laughs) our favorite part where Alex has taken it upon herself to research listener questions and actually answer them with a dignified, proper response. I've never heard these questions, but Alex, like I said, has researched the heck out of them and is going to enlighten us right now. All right. Starting off really dignified. Okay. This might sound mean, but I'm honestly just curious. Was there ever a time that you thought your kids objectively weren't that cute or thought that they might not grow up to be that cute? Is it really true that every parent thinks their baby is the cutest in the world? Hmm, It's interesting. I think that Lucy is very cute, like extremely cute. Like I'm obsessed with Lucy. Mm -hmm. However, I know intellectually that other people may think she's not the cutest. Whereas Betty... I think is adorable and like my beautiful little angel. But I think other people think that too. So if I was to say, hey, our life's on the line. We got to put the cutest baby out there or else we get killed. (laughs) I don't know. Sophie's Choice. I I, I don't really. I know in that movie, Sophie's Choice, they have to pick a kid to live and die. Oh, God, Shane. No, no. In this scenario, I'm saying we die if we don't put forth the cutest baby. I would put forth Betty just because I feel like other people would think she's a cuter baby. However, ugly babies often end up being very beautiful people. So there is a way that things turn around. (laughs) Your brother Jake is one of the most, he's probably the most handsome man I've ever seen in my life. He was an old man baby. He looked like an old man, Benjamin Button baby. And now it's like... Like, I'm like, am I gay or not? <laughs> Look, looks aside, because we all know beauty comes from within. But yeah, you know, be- Betty might be the most, what is it, classically cute baby. But Lou has something that I feel like if you're a Lou type of person, you're going to think she's the cutest baby. And yes, I do think that parents always think their kids are the cutest in the world until their kids are a few months older, or maybe a year or two older, and then they go back and they look at newborn photos because we look at newborn photos of lucy and betty come on there's a video on my instagram right now shane daddy 83 if you're not already following which i know everyone (laughs) is uh there's one where lou just looks like we call her merv she looks like a old account and bald covered in wrinkles i couldn't we were just laughing our heads off she she would turn it so she'd go from being like a very cute baby to 
Merv the accountant and she'd just look extra wrinkly and like extra balding on these days and it was such a funny little persona but Shane I noticed that a f- what a couple months ago I was looking back at my Instagram feed and I put up a picture of Betty and she looked so funny and ugly and like she was taking the biggest dump and at the time I'm like this is the cutest picture ever and I put it all over the internet and now I look back and like I'm embarrassed for her I got to show it to you. It's it's not cute. Let me see. She's purple. Oh, Alex. When you put that photo out, that was the most prototypical situation where you looked really good. The baby didn't. So you wanted to <laughs> pretend. You wanted to pretend that Betty looked good there. And you came to me. She, Alex goes, doesn't Betty look so cute here? I'm like, no. And then you were like, but I just love this photo. It was the big vanity okay, project. First of all, you. there's no way you remember that because this photo was posted on September 13th. Who cares? That that wasn't that long ago. Time flies right now. That feels like two weeks ago. Is that I, you're fun? I specifically remember that photo. You thought you looked so cool. Well, I do look cool. The way Betty looked well, was to irrelevant to you. Well, you, that makes a lot of sense because Belly look. That makes a lot of sense because Betty looks uh, pretty unfortunate there. Her so. name is Belly. <laughs> Sorry, Betty. All right. So yes, parents do think their kids are the cutest in the world. Although I no, think they, they don't. We no, just here's, no, no, we... here's the thing. Although I think they have moments of objectivity and you know seeing it from a different point of view. Five days in, you and I were laughing at us having the ugliest baby in the world. Yeah, but also the cutest. You can be cute and ugly. Well, there you go. Still the cutest. Next question: Do you have any tips for trying to conceive? So I didn't go through this. Uh, We conceived pretty easily. We were very fortunate. So I looked this up and, you know, so many things, if your situation is a typical situation, are just standard, like monitoring your ovulation. I actually did that. I had uh, strips that I would pee on and I monitored my ovulation after our miscarriage and just to see when, you know, I'd be ovulating again so that we could try again. Uh, Relax. Have sex often. This is one thing my doctor always tells me. These are pretty revolutionary tips here. No, that's the thing. they're, They're very standard unless there is an issue. So if you're just thinking about it and you're like just kind of getting into it, you know, I know it's hard not to stress about your ovulation days and trying to have sex in that window because it's not a very long window, but you really do just kind of have to put yourself at ease and, you know, just make it like a fun week of sex if you can. Speaking of revolutionary tips, I have an outstanding sperm count, which really did help. Congratulations, Shane. Get Uh, tips? You could also start taking prenatal vitamins. You should start taking those about, what, I think two or three months before you try to conceive anyway. Don't drink. Um, This was a big one for one of my friends. She was trying to conceive for about six months, but uh, was still drinking, just like not heavily, but regularly. And when she cut out drinking, she was able to conceive like a month later and it seems that that made the difference eat healthfully of course but if it's been six months to a year and you're especially if you're under 35 go see your doctor go get help like this can be such a stressful awful situation to put yourself through to put your relationship through and I've seen again from close friends of mine how difficult this can be on a person so go get help see if there is an issue that needs to be taken care of or that can be helped and you know just make sure that you're in good hands do a lot of research and find a good clinic to go to or a good doctor to go to 
Shane, any uh, more tips? No, it's it's hard for me because I do have good sperm. I wasn't just bragging there. <laughs> it's no, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying <laughs> I can't. Like I've never had any problem because every time we've had intercourse and there wasn't uh, codius interruptus, you it resulted in a pregnancy. It did. It did. All right, next question. It sounds like you guys have differing faiths. How are you choosing to raise your kids? Catholic, not Catholic, religious at all? So, yeah, so I am Catholic. Shane is not religious, although you grew up and went to, like, Sunday school, I think, right? Christian's literally my middle name. <laughs> it has no impact on your belief system. Well, uh, growing up, I went to Sunday school every Sunday. But did that even have an impact on your belief system? Well, I believed in Jesus for a bit, and then, you know, you start thinking about Santa, and you start wondering, is Jesus a big version of Santa? Hmm, I don't know. But... Jesus was a real guy. Well, how do you know? It's like... There, there, it's like historically... Like, broken was... telephone, though. No, no he, he, there's like so many figures in history, it's right, and he, there's many accounts of Jesus existing. Was he a hot white guy with like ripped abs? Of course not. Okay, then, well, I'm just saying broken telephone, if that can be switched up, anything can be. Like, there's stories from, like, in my lifetime that have been so ruined from misinterpretation. Of course, here's the thing. I'm not saying, you know, that details about his life are correct or haven't been misconstrued. So a person named Jesus existed. Yes. Okay, that that's undeniable. A person named Jesus exists right now. Well, lots of people named Jesus exist right that's, now. That's what I'm saying. But. Yes. I am so open to anything because just think about what we're doing right now. We're doing this podcast and this electrical device when Earth was conceived. There was nothing. There was just no podcasts. No, but I mean, (laughs) this device, in a way, it is organic. Even though it's made from all these things, it all came from the Earth somehow. This is a pretty magical thing that we're like floating through space right now. Are you on the dope as we speak? No, but (laughs) if you think about it, everything is so unexplainable that I am literally open to anything so I am pure agnostic and whichever thing you want to choose I'm open to kind of believing in Mm -hmm. like anything I find so much hope in having faith of some kind whether you are super faithful to a specific religion or whether you're just more of a spiritual person I find there to be so much more hope and so much more love in that just because I find that if you concede to the belief that there is nothing and that when we die we die and we're in the ground I just find that to be so lonely and so depressing and like I like to think about my grandparents that have died and other people that I know that have died and think that they're still connected to me in some way and like they're there somehow watching over me or being with me and it's like there's so much hope in spirituality did you smoke any of that dope no but I really do think that there is so much value to having faith of, of some kind. So what I want to do is I want to, you know, Lucy will, she is baptized. She will go to Catholic school. But I do want to teach her about all religions. Uh, and I want to try to celebrate different religious holidays in our house if we can. Um, and, you know, just so like so many of them are connected anyway. I mean, you look at uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they're cousins. They're all the same thing. They all have the same meaning. And so we you're all telling pray to the me we're going to celebrate Hanukkah? Well, that takes a lot of prep, and we're too busy with Christmas right now. So Hanukkah is just going to. No, I mean wait. eventually. Oh, well, we could, yeah. Kwanzaa. Yeah, let's. Uh, we can do Kwanzaa this year. 
Okay. Yeah, no, but I, I, mean, I am excited to kind of, you know, open Lucy up to all of the beautiful religions in the world. Because I, I do think there are so many nice ones. I really hope there's something, though, when we die. Same with me. Same with me. And, and that's what faith is, I think. It's just having that belief and that hope and that desire that there is something. Like, and, do you think heaven just feels like you're having an orgasm, like, the whole time? No. I guess that would get annoying. Like, feels like maybe, like... We saw that documentary together, Shane, where that guy couldn't stop orgasming. Oh, yeah. That was not heaven. Yeah, he went to his dad's funeral, and he orgasmed nine times. No, it was like it was like a really awful... What is that? Like, it's not a disease. Condition, I guess. Yeah, yeah and he, this poor guy was, like, living in hell. Yeah. I'm saying the feeling without actually ejaculating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the next question? <laughs> okay, the next question. We, we can cut this phone. What's Shane's relationship with his mom, and why are you guys closer with Nona? My relationship with my mom. My mom is a little bit of a different type of person. I don't know. She's the type she'll be like, I'll come over anytime you want. Look after my little angel, like Lucy. And then we'll be like, okay, mom, how about this time? But then she'll be busy. And I don't know. It's, It's just, it's hard to coordinate things with my mom. And my mom's mom was kind of like that too. She, I didn't have a super close relationship with my grandmother on my mom's side. So I don't know what's up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's my mom's like the most loving person oh, yeah. ever, the most emotional person ever. It's just she has a bunch of hangups like I do. Like if, if there's anything neurotic about me, I've certainly inherited it from my mom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's that. My relationship is good, but she is tricky to coordinate with because there's a million little idiosyncratic things going on with her at all times. Mm -hmm. And, and honestly too, I think a lot of it comes down to availability because your mom and Brad, you know, they're often up at the cottage. They're very out and about, very busy. They're not like the type of people who are like, I live for my grandkids, you know, and some people are that way. Which is Nona. Nona is just so hands on deck, you know, yeah, and it, so it's like that brings her joy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you have to do what makes you happy. I'm not like angry at my mom. I, I certainly think when I'm a grandparent, I'll be all over the grandfather process and be that mm-hmm. kind grandpa. But maybe the genes kick in once you hit 60 <laughs> and I'll just be like. I'm sp- no. I'm living my life now. See, no, because you know me and you know that I cannot wait to be a grandparent and you're going to get forced into that life. Like, I just honestly, I cannot wait until I'm 60 and I'm a grandparent. At 60, though. Think about that. How old are you now? Oh, I'm not going to be like an old grandparent at that point. But like from that point onward, if my, if I have kids, sorry, if I have kids, of course I have kids. But if my kids choose to have other kids, then hell yeah, it's going to be the best. I can't wait. (laughs) Okay. What else do we have? Mom guilt is real. Shane, do dads get it too? And is dad guilt a thing? I can't even smoke my cannabis without feeling guilty. Yeah, dad dad guilt's a thing. I'm ashamed often if I'm working too much. If, like, what's more important, putting the bacon on the table or spending time with Lucy? It's tough. Like being, I don't know if it's just evolutionary or whatever, where it's just like I'm so wound up to provide. But I feel like this, and I heard rumors of this in my younger years that, oh, once a man gets in his 30s, he just gets this crazy drive to provide. 
And for me, that's happened. Maybe not all men. Maybe it's just so specific to me. But I definitely feel like a force is taken over me Mm -hmm. where it's just like the most important thing is that I'm able to provide for my family. So that that feeling has overshadowed my feelings of shame that I do feel. Mm -hmm. The other day, you took Lou out to go look at Christmas lights. We were with Nona. And you just packed up your shit. I just assumed you weren't coming. And left. And then I'm like, geez, I'm missing this Christmas experience, this Christmas night. So I ran out into the streets looking for you five minutes later. Luckily, I picked the right direction and I found you. And we went, walked around and we looked at Christmas lights. Well, once I realized that you'd wanted to come, like I kind of started crying that, you know, we kind of left without you because you are so busy like well, you can so much ask of the time. well i just i know that's the thing and i should have and i just i just assumed and i felt so bad about that because obviously more than anything i want you to be there too and you know it, there's that like movie trope it's the dad who works too much and then at the end of the movie he realizes oh the only important thing is spending time with the kids but it's like yeah but you do have to pay for things and it's tough and i get how you can get stuck in that cycle but honestly the most meaningful thing is time and you always talk about that too it's like you know you're putting in work now so that we can have time later on and have all the time later on ideally so i was looking this up to read about dad guilt and it's very similar to male symptoms of postpartum depression which we have talked about on the pod before and postpartum depression in men is a real thing so symptoms of dad guilt or depression could be feelings of worthlessness and loss and anger. And about 10% of new fathers experience some form of really overwhelming dad guilt or postpartum depression, which is huge because 12% of women experience postpartum depression. So the numbers are a lot closer than I ever imagined them to be. And there's probably closer even than that because a lot of men maybe aren't admitting it. Or they don't even realize, I think. Well, and you think about how underreported it is even in women who are the ones giving birth and the ones really struggling with postpartum depression in, you know, like in a Mm -hmm. sense that more of them are. And women don't even really realize at this point what postpartum depression is or if they're going through it. And it's only just being destigmatized. So I can only imagine what that the actual numbers are like for men. But there's so many aspects of being a new parent that dads can't take part in. And I think that you, among other dads maybe, might, you know, try to make up for that in certain ways. And like for you, that's working more it's like you can't help out with nighttime breastfeedings obviously um i did come across one interesting thing that i I wanted to share so there is a woman named ellen galinsky she's the president and the co-founder of the families and work institute in new york and you know if your spouse your your partner you're finding that they are feeling like they have dad guilt or mom guilt or any kind of guilt surrounding what they're doing within the family, Ellen says, look, parenting 50-50 is a myth and that's such a lie we tell ourselves and it's such a harmful thing that we go into parenthood thinking because nothing is ever gonna be 50-50 totally equal at the same time. Parenthood is, you know, it's on a ratio that shifts constantly and maybe at one time, Shane is gonna be doing more than I am. Right now, I'm doing more than he is when it comes to parenting. But it's always shifting and it's always moving and you just have to be really honest with each other about when you need to be the one you know, doing something else and they need to kind of step up. But parenting is never ever 50-50 and if we expect it to be, then 
we're, we're going to be disappointed. Yeah, maybe overall it's 50-50 at the end of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're tallying it up. It's, but it's like, you know, finances too aren't always going to be 50-50. Yeah. Because right now I'm doing more in that regard. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm What? Well, I think they get that. Well, I'd See, like I think to make that little, clear. Yeah, and I think this is a little dad guilt coming up because you're finding really the need to like make well, I think they got, if we're talking about things people get, the whole segment's based on how I'm not around yeah, the kid so enough, so you didn't so really I... need to state that you're doing more of the parenting, right? <laughs> because the segment is predicated on that? Okay. All right. All right, moving on. Are you ever not on the same page with parenting decisions? Mm, I feel like I'm a very wise, sage parent, and I feel like you're always on board with anything I'm espousing. Oh, well, Aspousing? thank you. Espousing. Espousing. See? I'm wise. <laughs> I'm wise. No, we, we generally are on the same page. And I think... Well, what is a big... Uh, what do you think conflict we have about parenting? I don't think there is one yet. I mean, obviously, things might get different when the girls are a little bit older. And we're You like spanking, I find. But I, yes, I'm a grown man. I can take it. <laughs> <laughs> that was like stupidest joke I've ever done. No, no. I, th- I think as it is right now, we're on the same page. And... If we're not, and if we come to that, you know, realization that there is something that we're not on the same page about, I think that I'd probably approach it Rock, by paper, doing scissors. research, talking to experts, and then communicating with Shane, figuring out a compromise or what we think is best based mm-hmm. on that. I'd like to see that in real world, us having a disagreement no. and being like, first research, <laughs> then I'm going to see an expert, okay? <laughs> No, I research everything nonstop when it comes to parenting. That's the thing. It's easy. You're the best mom in the world, Alex. What's the next question? I hate you. Just kidding. That's not nice. Just kidding. All right, next question. My friend thinks her spouse is cheating. He denies it. What steps should she take? Well, if he denied it, I'm pretty sure he'd admit if he was cheating, right? So I would say to, you know, whatever proof you have, I would save that and isn't it whoever denied it supplied it though yeah he's cheating exactly Mm -hmm. so yeah i'd get whatever proof it was that you have or what led you to that save that just in case you do need it down the line but first you know with your spouse try to communicate determine the root of your problem if there is one and then determine on your own once you have information or whether your spouse tells you anything or not can you move forward do you want to move forward if you don't then take whatever proof it is that you've had wait she said she had proof there no i'm just saying like if you have proof of it save it don't just get rid of it could just be generalized suspicion though it could be and that's the thing so i'm just saying if you have proof then that might be useful for a lawyer right if you're trying to get custody or something And then if you want to get back together and you want to work things out, then you should probably seek a mediator, I think. If you're a cheater, does that mean you're an unfit parent? No, but I think that it can help determine things for custody. Like Like if he's lying about this, what else is he doing? Yeah, it's like, are you putting your family first if you're cheating? No, right? You're putting the welfare of the family second to your own What if it goes kids first, sex with your mistress second... (laughs) (laughs) wife third (laughs) no because the thing is the wife is integral to the family so what if if the mistress is very hands-on with the kids well then there's some serious issues going on Mm -hmm. but yeah i would say to get a mediator because obviously that's going to be a difficult thing to discuss and to work through even if you are both on the same page with wanting 
to work through it. Yeah, even suspecting cheating, I would say go see a couple's therapist and then you can really work it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then honestly, like as a couple, is moving forward the best thing for you? Is that something you want to do? I think there's a lot of stigma on people who stay together after somebody else has cheated, but that is solely for a single couple to decide what's best for themselves and what's best for their families. But definitely get help because it's so hard to talk these things through just on your own as a couple. So I would definitely say go see a therapist, work through that, keep lines of communication open, and just hang on to those receipts. And maybe he's just planning a surprise party for you, though. Okay, next question. Why? He could be. Go. (laughs) She's the balloon lady. When will the rest of the world do what Scotland did and give free period products? So, okay, I didn't even know this happened. Did you? Oh, I'm on, uh, no, I, I had a joke, but never mind. <laughs> You're on Menstruation Monthly? Yes. So, Dot com. Scotland became the first country to give its citizens free menstruation products because they stated that they did this earlier this year in 2020. They stated that menstruation is just health and that it should be covered as such. There's a Scottish MP that said, look, periods don't stop and poverty is increasing, especially as this coronavirus goes on. So this is needed more than ever. And I couldn't agree more is really cool what happened to Scotland because when I was reading it tonight it started as like a grassroots operation and built up from there and then you know the government couldn't ignore it anymore and turned into this thing so I think it really shows the power in campaigning and in trying to fight for what it is that you believe in and it's interesting because in Hamilton where Shane and I live This year, so on February 26, 2020, Hamilton put out a pilot project that started to put free menstrual products in washrooms at like certain rec centers around the city. And city councillors, and we we have a big problem with poverty in my city. We had city councillors that are so freaking privileged and just apathetic to so many of these people. I I have some quotes that uh, they were quoted as saying. So one guy, Terry Whitehead, said, we have people who don't have access to toothbrushes and toothpaste. So are we going to start providing those too? Just saying, well, that's the thing. Why the hell not? It's important. It saves money long term because then these people aren't going to the hospital for some abscess that they have. And it's like if people don't have access to these things, why don't we help the people in our community and get them these things? But also, Terry, I'm sorry. A girl, maybe 15 years old, who's going to school, doesn't have access to period products. You want to sit her at home in her house bleeding for seven days or send her to school bleeding? Like, how humiliating, how dehumanizing. That really pissed me off. Then, Esther Pauls, who is our ward counselor, Shane. So, we've dealt with her before. She's, like, specifically for our neighborhood. She was quoted as you know, in opposition to this whole thing. And she said, Canada is not a third world country and women here have ways of dealing with it. That is such bullshit. That is like sweeping any of the poverty issues that we have under the rug. I do like how you had an imaginary broom in your hand and an imaginary (laughs) rug and did that miming action. But yeah, obviously I agree. What is the alternative method though? I'm curious. Like when I was in school, a lot of people would say like as a kind of a derogatory term, I guess, for the period they would say, are you on your rag? Yeah. Is that to suggest you can shove a rag up there? No. Okay. No. What is the alternative then? The alternative is staying home. Like you can't. A girl can't... That's what she meant by there are alternative methods? Like, stay home? No, I don't know. Maybe she meant go to a shelter and get things there. Go to your school principal and get something from them. But it's like, again, everything is humiliating. When our city can help out the people that live here. And I think that is so important. 
But yeah, that was infuriating to find out. Last question for tonight. When you guys have a date night, is the main goal just to have sex or is it to spend time together? I think the main goal is just to take ourselves out of our routine. And that's just making the, the night feel special in some way. So one of the rules is you have to rent a movie that's not on netflix or something you have Mm -hmm. to go out of your way to watch something that isn't just super accessible or that you'd always do so something that's would be in theaters that now in these covid times is 19.99 to rent Mm -hmm. so it's like ooh, we're we're spending some money here (laughs) oh we're cracking a bottle of wine oh we're having some laughs we're being a little sillier and the sex in you know being married with two kids the sex is a little novel too it's like mm-hmm. wow oh yeah i forgot about this especially and your period came back i know so on the last date night <laughs> alex had her brag no uh, no kidding i don't i don't use that term. but you had your period yeah it was, it, the it was way the you were first, acting it seemed more like an exclamation point get out of here no it was the first it was the first period since i had Betty, and that was like so shocking. It really, uh, how okay, terrible so timing. T- tell me this. I always want to know mm-hmm. how bad is the mood you get in the PMS? The PMS means it's before, yeah. It's like, is it am I not supposed to ask about this? No, I want to know, it's, it's is annoying. it really a thing? Yeah, like your, your mood can fluctuate, obviously. For me, I think PMS is mostly just headaches, like, I get headaches before I get my period. How and- come your mood gets so much worse when I ask if you're on your rag? <laughs> Now I actually like the term. No, but if I ask you if you're on your period, how come then your mood because gets even worse? Because that is the most infuriating thing that I think a, a man can ask a woman. It's like a joke. Like you see this crap on bad comedies. It's like, oh, are you on your period? And then the woman I like everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> I people say I look like Ray Romano, but continue. But uh, yeah, it's just an incredibly diminishing thing to say because what if it is your period no because you are just assuming that it's something else and not how a woman actually feels about i'm just curious if it is i'm trying to rule out things get out of here i'm not assuming i'm not saying you're on your period okay enough period talk i have something to add to this i think that date nights yes are very much about sex oh shocking answer from alex no no and it's because you know we spend quality time most nights of the week together like after the kids are in bed we really try hard to relax and that might be playing a video game that might be watching a movie it might just be podcasting like we are tonight and i do think that as a couple we spend a lot of quality time together but i think what we don't do and what we try to make the effort to do on date night is to go that extra mile like you said do something novel look good for each other and have sex because it is so hard to find the time it is so hard to have the energy for that when you're a parent so if you can have one night in the week where it's like all right we're gonna do it nobody's gonna get too tired we're gonna you know make sure we don't get a headache whatever it is and we're actually gonna take that time and do that together and i think that partially makes it so special because it is hard to do sometimes anyhow baby that's it thank you so much for listening to this This family Family tree Tree Podcast, podcast episode 65